Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Showing your good side has many rewards. Become a donor at Griffles Plasma, and your plasma can make life-saving medicines. Millions of people depend on these medicines to live healthier, more active lives. And every time you donate with Griffles Plasma, you're compensated. You can receive over $500 the first month. Learn more about plasma and how it helps people at grifflesplasma.com. Being a parent can be really challenging. Child and Family Resource Network focuses on connecting pregnant parents and those with kids under the age of five with free support services to help them on their parenting journey. Everyone deserves someone they can turn to for help with parenting. Visit childandfamilyresourcenetwork.org today. Hey folks, I just want to take a minute to ask you to go and rate this podcast. Uh, let the team house know how you think we're doing. Go and rate us on whatever platform you're listening to this on, whether it's iTunes or Spotify or whatever else. Uh, those ratings really help us out, and we really appreciate the feedback to let us know what you like and what you don't like. And uh, if you do like the team house and you'd like to support us, go check out our Patreon page, and you can actually support the stream as well as get access to our bonus segments and bonus episodes. Yeah, if, if you're going to give us a great review, please do. And if you're going to give us a not-so-good review, why don't you just send us an email and we'll talk about it. <laughs> Special Operations. Covert Ops. Espionage. The Team House. With your hosts, Jack Murphy and David Park. Hey everyone, welcome to the Team House, episode 136. I'm Jack Murphy here with my co-host David Park. Tonight we have Matthew Cole on the show. He is an investigative journalist and the author of Code Over Country. This is a book about SEAL Team 6 and the war on terror and a lot of things that have happened. Um, essentially this is a book I think really about subculture, subculture and special operations and where it comes off the rails. And we're going to really take a deep dive on this subject and on Matthew's book tonight. Um, just a little heads up, we are going to talk about some graphic content here tonight. Um, war crimes, sexual assault, like there's some pretty grisly stuff in here, just a heads up. Some of you are sensitive to that kind of stuff. Is that a trigger warning? That's a trigger warning, man, because people are going to be big triggered well, in the live chat today. Uh, yeah. Um, so you know it's coming. So, Matthew, if you could just start off telling us a little bit about yourself uh, and kind of what was your entryway into journalism and then eventually covering a, a, a really specific type of journalism. You know, we've had some people on here, um, Sean Naylor and Jessica Donati and David Phillips, like there's but there's not many of us. Right. You can count them on, you know, two hands, two and a half hands, um, people who cover special operations and, and JSOC. Um, what was kind of your path into journalism and then winding up in a very specific field? Uh, first, I'm really grateful for you guys having me on. I'm really glad that uh, you gave me an opportunity to talk about the book. Um, 
I was a graduate student of journalism at Columbia um, when 9-11 happened. And uh, it is absolutely the case that 9-11 and being in New York and downtown, uh, I was about a block and a half from the Twin Towers uh, from 5 a.m. to 8 a.m. that morning. Um, and then eventually made my way back over um, after both buildings had come down. Uh, 9-11 focused what I was interested in in journalism. And uh, almost immediately, I was particularly drawn to understanding what had gone on in Afghanistan. Um, and so after graduate school, um, I really just tried to figure out how as a basically as a freelance reporter, how to get myself to Afghanistan. And more importantly, I always felt um, that when I was watching news coverage of the wars uh, in Iraq and Afghanistan, that, you know, I don't know what the sense was, there was something missing. To me, it was very cookie cutter, um, which isn't to denigrate the reporters on the ground who were doing, in some cases, a very good job under uh, difficult circumstances. But at that time, you know, it was all embeds. And so there was a limitation on the kind of story that you could do. Um, and so I decided to go to Pakistan on my own in, in 2005 um, and do a reporting trip up in Northwest uh, Pakistan, um, which at the time, although it wasn't the Fatah, it was, it was, it was dicey. Um, and when I was there, I was very close to the Afghan border uh, Nuristan, and I went, as it happened, I think I landed in Pakistan probably a week after the lone survivor incident had occurred um, in Afghanistan. And I was at that time reporting more about the CIA, and I was really struck by the notion, I was talking to people who lived in this valley um, that was near Afghanistan, and I, and I asked, would ask them, you know, did they have any signs or indications that there was a war going on? you know, about an eight-hour walk away over the, the mountains. They said, no, you know, there's very little is different. You know, there's some people who come through and, you know, there's some white guys, there's some Taliban guys that come through, but, you know, they don't bother us and we don't see much difference. And they certainly don't hear or see anything in the sky. And I thought, I was really interested in the notion that there was this sort of invisible line at the border that differentiated one side from the other and that there was this war going on. And so I ended up embedding... Uh, a little less than a year later in Afghanistan uh, and went up to Kunar and Nuristan. And at that time, I was reporting mostly on, on the CIA, but I started doing more military uh, coverage um, or reporting, but, you know, uh, abroad. And, you know, you sort of do one piece at a time. I, I think I've probably always um, just followed whatever subject I thought was interesting or question I had about something. Um, and... I think I've always looked for trying to understand what, is, what are we not seeing here? What is the public not seeing? Um, and so, you know, I, I went, I covered the CIA uh, pretty extensively for, you know, about 10 years. And as at, towards 2009, I was a, a investigative producer at ABC News. And um, I started getting interested in JSOC and Blackwater. And so I started pulling that thread and, and, about two years into reporting on Blackwater, Eric Prince, and JSOC, I, I was working on something about Stanley McChrystal at the time, and um, I, you know, someone uh, showed up at my door, so to speak, um, who mentioned hatchets and SEAL Team 6. And to be honest with you, at that time, I didn't really know anything about SEAL Team 6. I mean, I knew they existed, but I had no, no knowledge whatsoever of their culture. Um, and... 
uh, or where they fit into um, the world of JSOC. And, uh, you know, but basically I had someone saying, look, if you really are, want to find something troubling, you got to look into why um, guys in my unit are carrying hatchets on the battlefield. And that was the beginning. That was the start. Um, it, it was not a direct path. It was a lot of zigging and zagging as I was working on other things. Um, but you know, the more I worked on it, the more I found that that there was was bigger than just a, a story of hatchets. Um, and you know, I think I, I probably this book is is uh, ultimately a reflection and the result of how I go into a. a subject or a topic, which is I just want to know everything that, that's happened and I really want to know everything. I, I like to think of it as in three dimensions, you know, which is the good, the bad, and the ugly. Mm -hmm. um, and the more I learned, the more I could see, well, the good has been told over and over and it's been told um, very effectively. Uh, the Navy SEALs in general, SEAL Team 6 in particular, um, but the story had a bunch of key omissions to it. And those omissions were enough to, you know, really change um, our understanding and what the public should know and understand about, you know, what the unit had become, especially after 9-11. I, I, I kind of, I'm just really, really curious about you graduating from, from school and then ending up in Pakistan reporting on the CIA. How, like, how did all that start? Like, how, how do you start reporting on the CIA? Like, I, I, you know. It's a good question. I, you know, I, <laughs> you know what I did? I, I can tell you actually the beginning and the, probably the first part of it, uh, which is I was just reading books. I read every book that I wanted to read. You know, after 9-11, I actually go back a little bit. Since the 93, uh, the first bombing of the World Trade Center in 1993, for whatever reason, I could, I knew, I can tell you where I was at each major uh, terrorist attack from 93 until 2001. And uh, after the embassy bombings in 98, although I couldn't remember his name, when, the, when I watched the second plane hit the second tower on 9-11, I knew who it was. I couldn't remember his name. I, I didn't, Al-Qaeda didn't mean anything to me, but I, could, I actually remembered his face. And, and what with the, you know, it was a very common image that time with, with um, a, more of a white uh, turban a uh, little more, looking a little more Saudi than he was looking, you know, like he was living in Afghanistan. And, you know, so I had an interest, right? So after 9-11, I had even more of an interest to understand what had happened. How did it come to this? What what had occurred? I mean, you know, there was nothing, nothing special about that. I think there were a lot of Americans that felt that way. And so I was interested in the CIA. I was, I was um, when I was in graduate school, I was already... Um, a, f a huge fan um, of Seymour Hersh at The New Yorker. And I was just reading everything that I could to help me make sense of what a world, how the world had just changed, at least from the American perspective. And um, I started reading every book written by someone from the CIA. That was what I did. And uh, the f one of the first that I read at the time was, was Bob Bear's book. Mm -hmm. And so what I did was I was a journal, you know, a, a student journalist. I found a way. It took me a long time, actually. But I eventually got Bob Bear on the phone. And I said, I'm a journalist, and I want to figure out how to find people like you and get people like you to talk. And he gave me a few pointers. And it, you know, it was nothing mind-blowing, but it was enough to sort of give me a sense of what I did. And then at that time, you know, the first three years or so after 9-11 and, and the invasion uh, in Afghanistan, 
a lot of the guys who were in the CIA were writing books. Mm -hmm. You know, you had Gary Schroen, then you had Gary Bernstein. And so there were, I could read the books and then I'd find, you know, I'd find them, I'd reach out and I, I would start to, to, you know, report basically. And that's all it was. It was not, you know, it was just a question of um, talking to, talking to people in that community and trying to understand the difference between what they were saying, what I thought I was seeing, and then what the public was seeing. Mm -hmm. And there was always a difference. Mm -hmm. And, you know, sometimes it was because the government was actively lying. Sometimes it was because it's just really hard to, you know, work on, on these kind of stories. Um, and it's not easy with a daily deadline, you know. So, that, you know, that was, that was how I did it. It wasn't, it certainly was not um, anything special at all. It's very interesting. I uh, would like to jump into the book and start with uh, Ralph Penny. There's, uh, I mean, this is about a special operations subculture coming off the rails, but although that was accelerated by the war on terror, I think you really point to in the book about how the precursors were kind of always there in the culture. This sort of pirate outlaw culture um, was at least a faction within the SEAL community. And I think the story about Ensign Penny really tells how dark that really got. Yeah, I mean, you know, the, at the end of the day, uh, I, I went into writing this book. I had, you know, a cursory knowledge of the history of the SEALs um, and felt obviously that there's not any way that I could write about um, present day SEAL Team 6 if I didn't get into, um, you know, its origins. And so I started at the beginning, which is in World War II. Um, and, you know, let's lay out here for a second that historically um, the combat swimmers and the UDT, um, the frogmen as they were known in World War II, had a tradition and a subculture completely outside of the regular Navy, even then. Mm. And, um, and, and a lot of what we know today of the SEALs, you can see in what was going on in 1943. Um, movies, Hollywood films in 1951, they had their own um, chant and song, which you know, made it very clear um, that they were you know, crazy motherfuckers. They were the craziest bastards in the Navy, the toughest. Um, and so there are, there are, it's like in their DNA, right? There's, there's something to them and they're a really small unit, right? We're not talking about the history of the 82nd Airborne or parts of the Army. They're a separate from the Navy and very specialized, um, which means that whatever cultural issues they have, they're more concentrated. And one of the stories that I had heard over the years was an incident about a young ensign, an officer, who had just graduated from BUDS in the late 70s, um, who uh, was essentially um, pushed to his suicide uh, after being hazed shortly after getting out of graduating from BUDS. And it was one of those stories where, you know, everyone, everyone had heard something. Oh, I know that story. I heard that story. And then you start to ask. No one knew anything, right? And it was all over the place. But I had a couple of sources who said, no, it's real. It happened. And, you know, initially it took, took me a couple of months just to figure out what, what the victim's name was. And it was uh, Ensign Ralph Stanley uh, Penny, um, who had been a Air Force Academy graduate. He had his own uh, really fascinating story, which was that his father was a, a colonel and a pilot in the Air Force who had fought and flown a ton of missions in Vietnam and was a decorated war hero. And his son, wanted, who had the same name, wanted to uh, do as his dad did and become a pilot. 
uh, but he had terrible vision. And so by the time he got through part of the Air Force Academy, it became clear that he couldn't really be, uh, he was never going to fly. And so he chose instead to join the Navy to get into butts and become a SEAL. At that time, there, you know, it was, you could go into a UDT or end up as a mm -hmm. SEAL. So uh, I think he just wanted to be a frogman. Um, and his father, his mother and father, according to his uh, sister who survived him, uh, were very against him going. Uh, they were religious. Um, the father's experience in Vietnam with the SEALs was that they were uh, drinkers and killers, and he didn't want that for his boy. Um, and uh, they basically, it was not allowed to be talked about when it became clear that uh, Ensign Penny was going to sign up and go to uh, Bud's. And um, so, you know, as I was digging, I realized there was a, it wasn't just something bad at the end of the story that was really something interesting and sad and, and, and compelling about what had happened to him. Um, it took a while, but ultimately, you know, what, what occurred was he, uh, joined, he joined his team, was UDT uh, 21 uh, on the East Coast a little bit early because he had done, his, because he had been in the Air Force, he had already done his um, jumps. He was already uh, certified as a, as a skydiver. So um, he got to go early while the rest of his buds class went to Fort Benning to do their, their courses there and get their, cert their certification. And uh, the officers there decided since he was going to be uh, checking in soon that they would send him on a training uh, evolution um, early with a platoon. Um, and he, it was not going to be the platoon that he was going to join, um, but he was going to he, he'd get his get a little bit of experience. So he was given to a platoon who was led by then a lieutenant uh, uh, Joseph McGuire. Um, we can get into him later. And they go down to uh, Saint. Th they go down to uh, Vieques, where there was a, a seals had a training uh, station. And on a Liberty weekend, he goes with. Um, a E6 or an E7, um, who was a Vietnam veteran named uh, Eddie Leisure, Fast Eddie Leisure. It was a uh, considered one of the best, you know, uh, best op operators in the SEALs during Vietnam, was highly regarded. Um, and he had become, he had gone, he sort of moved around, but he didn't want to become a chief. So he must have been an E6 because he, he had refused. Uh, I talked to some people who had who had served with him and knew him, and he had actively avoided becoming a chief because he didn't want to be in charge. He didn't want to do any paperwork. Um, so he did some uh, training, dive training. And uh, Liberty Weekend, he takes uh, Penny to St. Thomas. And St. Thomas, um, during the 50s and 60s, had been the winter home of the East Coast Seals um, and UDT and had a, uh, was a, you know, a long tradition in the SEALs of um, going to St. Thomas, whether you were on training or later in Vieques and, and traveling over on Liberty, and getting drunk for the weekend, as all good sailors and, and servicemen uh, do when they have R&R &R, um, or time off. And um, But St. Thomas was uh, had a very liberal uh, social dynamic and community at the time and a very open uh, gay community at the time. And so there was a a tradition in the seals with frogmen um, when they were out drinking when they ran out of money the youngest guy in the team um, was they would get him drunk and they would then sell him off to one of the, the gay men at the bars for money so that the rest of the team could drink 
And so as it was described to me, um, you know, it was, they didn't do it every time and they didn't do it to everyone, but it was frequent. It was very much frequent and it was part of the, the hazing culture. Um, and it was very much don't ask, don't tell what happened the next day. So fast forward to 1979, um, Penny goes with Eddie Leisure and they go out for a night on the town and Leisure gets him drunk. Um, and over the course of the night, they're at a bar. Um, at that time, and you'll forgive some of these uh, awful terms, I'm just using the language that was common then as it was described to me by my sources down there. Um, they had, you know, essentially uh, transgender uh, men dressed as women. They were known as Benny Boys in, in the Seals and in, in St. Thomas at the time. And so he, uh, Penny was uh, at the bar. He was getting progressively drunk. He was drinking with uh, a uh, Benny Boy and um, wasn't clear. He, eventually he became so blackout drunk, it was clear that he didn't know that this was uh, a man. Nonetheless, he went back to the hotel um, and Leisure uh, basically came back to the room and found him, let him be, came back the next morning to get uh, Penny and basically said, you know, you slept with a man. And um, when he got, they got back uh, to Vieques, um, Leisure told the rest of the platoon, uh, the quote was that we sold him to a fag. Um, which was, you know, I, I want to point out here for people who uh, may buy the book that in um, the Penny section, I have a quote from an officer, a retired SEAL officer, who describes this older tradition in St. Thomas. And that quote actually was an on-the-record quote of Dick Marcinko. Um, I didn't put his name in because he doesn't come into the book till later, and I didn't want to confuse it, but with him uh, passed on and and under the circumstances, um, he described in great detail what they did and how they did it. And it was confirmed by others who, who um, served with leisure and with, with uh, Marcinko. Um, so uh, Penny was apparently very, very distraught. And, and let's just also say that, you know, Eddie Leisure is now dead. He died a few years later. Um, we will probably never know what happened that evening. The, mm. the, the, it's virtually unknowable. What is absolutely the case is whatever did or did not happen, when uh, Instant Penny uh, woke up the next day and came out, he was told, uh, who had, and had no memory because he was blacked out, uh, that he had slept with a man. Mm. And he was unbelievably upset. And what uh, became clear is he came back, the, the, the whole team was told, the whole platoon was told. Um, and then Penny on the way flight back to Virginia Beach um, was very distraught and, and made a statement on the plane that this stuff was not going to stand, that he was going to, he was going to do something about it. Um, he was very agitated is the point. Um, they got back the week before Memorial Day. Um, a few days before Memorial Day, uh, Ensign Penny goes and uh, buys a 22 caliber pistol um, in Virginia, and a few days later he uh, shoots himself in the head. Um, it was a small caliber bullet. The death was uh, very messy and awful, actually. Um, and later that became a running joke also at Little Creek. Um, one of the SEALs in his unit uh, described uh, a, you know, they would have, after he had died, 
um, getting on the, the the mic for the for the for the whole Little Creek and saying something along the lines of Ensign Ensign Penny Ensign Penny, you're wanted uh, in the armory to clean your weapon. Joke being that you know he had uh, failed to clean his weapon and so it had misfired on him and uh, not uh, not killed himself properly, basically. And uh, you know the Navy did an investigation um, very quickly. Um, the they determined their results were um, that he was depressed and he had taken his life because he was depressed. There was no mention of St. Thomas. There was no mention of Eddie Leisure. Mm-hmm. Um, there was nothing about what had occurred. Um, and so, and, and when the father, um, Penny's father came with the mother, he confronted the officers and the commander at the base and said, You're, this, is, this story doesn't make any sense. I know you killed him. My boy wasn't depressed. Um, you know, they said, he was, you know, they didn't challenge him. They thought he was inconsolable and, and just said, we're sorry, you know, your, your son was unhappy and he, he took his own life. Um, so Ensign Penny's surviving mother, father, and sister, his sister Rebecca, um, they knew always that there was something wrong with the story. They, they felt, uh, according to his sister Rebecca, that he must have been murdered because the, the story didn't make any sense. Um, he was not murdered. There's no evidence that that was the case. Um, but it was a, you know, obviously for the family, incredibly traumatic. Um, they never, they never got over it. Um, and it was a long buried secret. And the question had always been, um, what did Lieutenant, uh, Joseph McGuire, who later became, uh, commander of WARCOM, know? Um, when I first brought it to him, it was, I know nothing about this. This is the first I've ever heard about it. Um, but his uh, spokesperson did call me and say, you know, but we do have the the 40-year-old NIS report, and I, report which, by the way, has been destroyed because it's over 25 years old. They just happen to have it handy. And point out that there's no mention of St. Thomas and there's no mention of, you know, a Vietnam veteran SEAL, um, except that, you know, according to the spokesperson, McGuire knew that he had gone on liberty with uh, another, another SEAL opera, you know, another uh, veteran frogman, which is kind of an interesting thing to know if you didn't know anything about St. Thomas. Right. Um, and, you know, I, so the question is more not whether uh, then-Lieutenant Joe McGuire knew. The question is how could he have not known um, in a SEAL platoon when... The rest of the platoon in Vieques knew immediately afterwards. Um, you know, so it's, it's I, I don't want to call it exactly an origin story, but you sort of get every mm. part of this culture of cover-up and pushing people to the edge. That, well, I, I'm just, I'm just curious, man, because like, you know, his, his father said that they were drinkers and killers, but I mean, that could kind of be applied to most special operations units in Vietnam, right? The, uh, almost, Absolutely. And, and even today, like, I mean, uh, not that I'm a killer, I'm a very nice guy, but, but that, that they're, they're sort of that origin, like, why, and, and why is, why this book and why about SEALs when there are, you know, like there have been, crimes and issues and things like that with other units like what what drew you to to the seals in particular sure let me just say one thing about the the father's comments i'm not co-signing the father's right comments. right right, I'm, right. I'm, but i i what what i took actually from 
that description of what the father said was more that there was some kind of intuition by a parent that their child was going to get eaten alive. Mm-hmm. In other words, it, it wasn't, it, it, it's not about drinkers and killers. He was a religious guy. Look, he dropped bombs on people. Right. I mean, what's the difference right. between a guy right. with a knife and a guy who drops a, you know, a 500 pound bomb on a village um, in, in that sense? Um, it was, I think, more interesting to me, and obviously we can't know, both parents are dead and it's we're talking about someone's psychology so it's not this is not reporting per se but from as a as a journalist but also as a as a father as a you know as a human i I took those those words to really mean that on some level there was a sense that he knew that he this kid his son was not up for the rough and tumble nature of what this community was he didn't have the temperament something yeah Yeah. something okay so that's the first part the second part is to answer your question about why the seals why seal team six why i think that there is a um after i mean it was before the 20 year mark but at 20 years we are at a point where as a country and as a public we have to ask ourselves what what did we just come out of what did we get out of this what happened and on the commercial side, on the sort of cultural public, uh, you know, commercial cultural side, the books, the movies, the podcasts, the story is one that's very unambivalent, right? SEALs and SEAL Team 6 are heroes who can do no wrong. They are the best leaders. They are the best everything. It's, a, it's an image that they promote most. I mean, the, the, mil, you know, the SEALs drive the biggest recruiting and recruitment for the Navy. Okay, so there's a bigger picture here than just um, a bunch of SEAL operators who want to make a little money in their in their uh, post-military career, um, pushing how great they are and what they can contribute to society. Of which I have no problem with whatsoever. My issue is, and, and I think journalistically and as an investigative reporter, the question is, is that we have this story, this this very clear story, but is it true? And, you know, one of the things that I thought of when I was thinking about whether I should do a book was you can have flag of your fathers 40 years after the fact, or you can have flag of your fathers now. Mm -hmm. And my sources were coming to me from inside the SEAL community to say, look, we're losing a battle against guys who are the worst of our community, who have done some of the worst things, Mm -hmm. both, you know, morally, ethically, but just, you know, operationally. Mm -hmm. Um, and they're the ones who are getting ahead, mm-hmm. mostly in public, but also inside. Mm-hmm. And that is, you know, from their perspective, unconscionable, right? Mm-hmm. It's the opposite of what we're, we should be doing, right? The military, like anywhere else in our society, is supposed to be merit, you know, there's supposed to be a meritocracy. Now, we can debate whether it is in fact that everyone, I think, can experience, you know, can relate to the experience in the corporate world of watching people fail upward, mm-hmm. right? And I think that in a lot of ways, Code Over Country is a... Um, a case study in failed leadership. And that's really where the, you know, one of the things that I've always been uh, made myself clear to do is to really name the officers mm-hmm. involved, not the enlisted or senior enlisted, yes, but not the, the, the younger enlisted because it's not their responsibility, right? right? Um, so the question, why the SEALs, why SEAL Team 6? Um, because they made themselves a public source a of- brand. A brand. An absolute brand. And yeah. by the way, a very powerful brand. They're really good at it. Yeah. They're fantastic. You know, I mean, it's the old duffel, uh, the duffel blog thing about Bud's, the Bud's course, you know, the, the book writing course at Bud's, you know, the new 
you know, and it's a, yeah. it's a joke, obviously, but it's funny in it because it has some truth to it. And so, you know, as an investigative reporter, you know, if someone, I mean, I, I want to jump ahead for a second, but you know, you take a story, take two stories like Matt Bissonette and Rob O'Neill, right? And um, if they don't write books about what they did and what they were involved in, I'm not going to spend any time as an investigative reporter going into what the story is or isn't, right? I mean, unless, right. it's not right. about them. They, right. I don't they, care. They right. put themselves out there. Right. You want to make, you know, a couple million dollars telling this heroic story of yourself and you don't want to write things down that are accurate or you tell th you tell the story in a way that's not, that's inaccurate. I think you're, you, and so that's a small case, but that's the answer is writ large, right? If right. you're a organization or a community or a culture that wants to make money and uh, earn fame and uh, sort of put yourself um, up at this at at this place culturally, um, then it it better be true, right? And and you know, there's plenty of truth in a lot of these stories um, that have been made public, but it, it's always the parts that are missing, and the public is you know the public doesn't. I mean, you guys can appreciate this because you've experienced this. One of the things that I, I was, I, I sort of had an aha moment at some point writing this book where I realized that what the public doesn't get when they get virtually any news story about a military event, they have no context. Right. I mean, none. Because right. very few Americans have been to war. Right. Very few Americans have put on a uniform. Right? That's a, a, an issue. And so, and going back, 20 years after, you know, SEAL Team 6 is probably the one unit, one military unit that you can name and people understand what that is. It's a global brand. As, a, as opposed to any other unit in the military that we might mention, you would have to stop, take a moment, and kind of explain to the public what that unit is. And the SEALs are probably the one exception to that. Yeah, and I think that it is a, the, the I, you know, I think the subtitle of this book could have been The Secrets of SEAL Team 6, could have also been The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. Right. You know, they've done some incredibly heroic work. They've done some great work. I know a lot of good SEALs from SEAL Team 6. And I would venture to say that most are good. But there is a steady core in the SEALs and at SEAL Team 6. And, and the thing is, is that you know, your, your listeners know the difference between the SEALs and SEAL Team 6. But what people don't un fully appreciate is that when you have a unit this elite, whatever they do eventually trickles down into mm -hmm. the white side of the seals. And so that's how you get Eddie Gallagher, right. right? That's where you get where it's like, you know, to be expected kind of that eventually you're going to have, you know, I, I, someone said to me when it, when I was interviewing a former seal and member of seal team six about Eddie leisure. And they said, you know, after Vietnam, we had 20 or 30 Eddie leisures in the teams uh -huh. and later you know, not later, actually, prior to that, when I interviewed someone during the Gallagher, during the, the court-martial, it was, you know, we have 20 or 30 Eddie Gallagher's in the teams. There's nothing special about them uh -huh. in that sense. What was special was that there were a bunch of kids who came and mm -hmm. uh, decided that, you know, they would put their careers uh, in jeopardy to try to stop them, uh -huh. right? So, you know, that's the, that's the motivation behind. So let me ask you then, what is the difference between... Um, Something like this happening at SEAL Team Six by something that happened this in SF or Rangers or, like, are we just looking at individual like these these bad seeds? You know, the, these people that you know get through their screening process and and do things that 
you know, whether in combat or, or back home, you know, um, uh, you know, are, are war crimes illegal, things like that. Is there a difference between like when it happens in the SEAL community and when it happens someplace else? No, I mean, look. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to, has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Crimes of war and, and violations of the laws of war are, are the same regardless of who commits them. I think the question is, is what do you do about them and what is the, the frequency? Uh... But it's beyond that. There is a, there are legal questions, uh-huh. there are ethical questions, and there are moral questions. And um, SEAL Team 6 and the SEALs are very unique in their ethical, particularly ethical, but in, in, in some cases moral and legal issues. They have problems, and the, the, the real issue is they just won't deal with it. Okay. I mean, the, 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 the reason why this book exists is because they couldn't clean up their own shop. Okay. Period. Right? And, and I think, you know, we were talking a little bit about this before uh, we went on. Delta had some of the same problems early in the war. They had war crimes issues. They were very aggressive. They lost a lot of guys. They were not asking questions. There was not a whole lot of supervision. Rock was a mess. Was, you know, as in a, you know, uh, very, you both know very well, um, a battlefield that was just chock full of targets. Um, the guys who were committing wanton acts of desecration, mutilations, war crimes in Delta were all quietly let go afterwards. They weren't brought up on charges. There was no court-martial. There was no UCMJ. They were When the deployment was over, they were given time to sort of process through, and then they were just asked to leave. And there was no, there was no answer or explanation. That is something, you know, they, they took care of their viruses. The, you know, they had an illness. So they policed their they, own. They basically. policed their own because the, because the integrity of the unit was always greater than any individual member of the unit. And that is a cultural issue. And I'm not an expert on Delta. I ask everyone that I talk to, especially in, in Delta, and in the SEALs, what's the difference between you guys? And I don't just mean how you hold your guns or how you, you know, attack a target. What are the cultural issues? Um, and that is the, the, the biggest one, that there are, there's a standard. It has to be met every day. And at Team 6, historically, it is the opposite. Once you're in, the standards are relaxed. And there's also this team issue. The, the SEALs make it through buds. You become a SEAL by working as a team, six in a boat, uh-huh. right? And that concept is what make, gets you through, and that creates an incredibly intense bond, one that I think is, is often the envy uh, of other units. Um, they're, you know, really close-knit. The problem is, is that when things go bad, you never want to see your buddy kicked out or screwed over. Right. So the, the instinct is, let's fix it. becomes a question it. of loyalty. Yeah, right. yeah, let's fix this in-house. Keep it in-house. Right. And that's what Marcinko did when he set up SEAL Team 6, yeah. and he said so there's, explicitly. There's a lot in your book about Marcinko and about how it kind of was founded on this pirate culture, but I, I do want to skip ahead 
and talk about how these problems got accelerated during the war on terror. And I was wondering if you could tell us about what really happened at Roberts Ridge and how that really um, started uh, accelerating the problems that the unit was have and led to other things. But if you could tell, sure. tell the story. Sure. So the, the battle at Roberts Ridge uh, was at a mountaintop known as Takar Gar in uh, eastern Afghanistan in March, early March of 2002. Um, the SEALs were part of the SOF unit, uh, a uh, recon element for a larger uh, big army uh, push into the, what the military believed at the time was the last valley of stronghold of Taliban and Al-Qaeda fighters. Um, and there was a deadline to meet, and the SEALs, a small uh, SEAL recon uh, element from uh, SEAL Team 6 from Red Team, uh, went in by helicopter. Uh, one of the SEAL, one of the operators, uh, Neil Roberts, fell out the back of the helicopter after the helicopter uh, was hit by uh, enemy fire at the top of the mountain. Um, they then, uh, the helicopter recovered. Eventually, the team, uh, the, the surviving team, went back in looking for him. Um, that led to uh, the uh, an, another ambush and extended firefight with uh, some Al-Qaeda fighters. It was a very entrenched uh, position. Neil uh, Roberts was killed uh, pretty quickly. They, the SEALs didn't know that, but he was killed pretty quickly. Um, and then the combat controlman who was uh, the CCT attached to the red team, John Chapman, was struck. Uh, the two other SEALs in the, in the, the group were hit. They blew smoke and, and retreated to save uh, the remaining guys. Chapman was left believed to be dead. Um, turns out he was not dead. He, was, he later recovered uh, from his wounds and fought alone at the top of the mountain for about an hour before a QRF comes in um, with rangers uh, primarily. Uh, another somewhere, I think there's a total of seven who, who died that day. There was another five. Um, they were not all rangers, four rangers, I think, and another uh, Air Force, maybe a PJ, um, who was killed on the, on the mountain. Uh, ultimately, they, they got the, they, they, the Americans won, took control of the mountain, uh, but they lost uh, seven servicemen, as I said, the first member of SEAL Team 6. In the aftermath of Roberts Ridge, the SEALs discovered that uh, Neil Roberts had been mutilated and that the enemy, they, in fact, it had been seen on the uh, ISR coverage as it was happening um, in certain places. Uh, one of the guys, the, the enemy had tried to cut off his head and almost did, but it, it failed. And when his body is brought back to Bagram, and this I didn't know until I did the book, um, I'd, and I, I actually had asked you guys whether this was normal. I was told that this was very unusual and not normal. Um, they basically had most of, of his teammates, almost all of them, come in and view the body Jesus in that condition. Christ. And that there was a long, and I actually talked to some people who were there when it was happening, and there was a long line waiting. Needless to say, it was a very traumatic event. They had lost their first teammate. Right. Uh, Chapman uh, died. Um, there's a, you know, a secondary uh, uh, scandal and issue with Chapman that we can get into, yeah, we'll later. Get into that later. But, but the, suffice to say, what happens here is sort of two things. SEAL Team 6, for the first time in their history, is in real war and combat, right? right? The reality is, is that until 9-11, in JSOC, and when Special Operations, SEAL Team 6 was JV to Delta. 
it, it just was. They never got the, they never got picked for the missions. Um, they finally broke through uh, in Bosnia um, with, with one of the snatches. And so they started to, get, to pick up steam, but they were never the first choice. Um, now they were at war and SEAL Team 6 is on the front lines and um, they get they face get faced with a horrific situation right. in which you know their team leader Brit Slabinski is essentially uh, ordered to go up to the top of of a of a mountain um, and it, violating all the basic principles of reconnaissance against his own uh, recommendation yep. to his officers. Um, and I just want to stop here and say that one of the things that is um, most interesting, I think. Uh, about understanding the culture, and I, you know, I think that's obviously true at, at Delta as well. But SEAL Team Six, Dick Marcinko built the unit so that the um, officers command, but the senior enlisted lead. And so, um, when Slabinski says, "I need 24 hours more," and he is told basically, "Shut up and get to the top," he's following his orders. And so, it's not you know, it is not his responsibility that they were sent up there. But it's also the capitulation from the E7 or the E8 who definitely knew better than the two men who were ordering him up there, mm -hmm. right? He knew better. And it's something that he said, you know, in the interviews that I published, he talks about. He knew he was violating this, this, this cardinal, you know, this basic rule of recon. And uh, it was eating at him immediately, right? Mm -hmm. um, so they sort of have this really awful event. They have this horrific thing happen to one of their teammates and in the immediate aftermath, and I mean immediate, they went on a, some of them, not all of them, some of the unit went on for what later became known as revenge ops. They mm -hmm. were after blood. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, it, it's trite, but they went up one way and they came down another, right? They, they, the guys who were on that mountain did not come back down the same and it, and it trickled through most of the team because of the nature of the way the unit was. And there was this sort of other element, you know, which is that um, we can get into the squadrons, but at the time it was Red Team and they were known as the Red Men. They, they had a mascot, a Native American mascot. And so there was this, um, this identity mm. issue that grew. Um, and in the immediate aftermath, there were, you know, there were war crimes very quickly afterwards, within 24, 36 hours um, by the SEALs, um, some of the SEALs, including one of the officers. Um, and so it's your starting point of understanding post 9-11 how things change. And, I, you know, some of it is obviously they had a culture of cover-ups in the SEALs and in SEAL Team 6 unit. But the other thing is, is let's be honest, right? It was war yeah, for the first time. These guys were seeing war for the first time. Well, and not only was it war, but they saw a... F a friend of theirs, a teammate, you know, somebody who they had spent time with, you know, who they knew personally, ha having been savaged, you know, not just killed, but but savaged, yep. and and I can I can definitely understand sort of that mentality of all right, well, let's get some, right? I don't think you know. I think that it is fair to say that that most people can can relate or appreciate to that feeling, right? So the notion that there is an eye for an eye and justice needs to be served, you know, that there needs to be revenge. I think what um, your officers will tell you is, is that that's all well and good, but we have a law, we have rules and regulations, and um, we need to keep it within the bounds of what's acceptable. And I think 
you know, what, what someone said to me one time was, you know, it wasn't that there was ever really one moment where we had just gone, where the whole unit had gone totally off the rails. What they said was, on each deployment, there were groups of guys in each squadron that would go too far. Right. But what would happen is they were never pulled back. Never. Right. In 15, in 20 years. And so the officers never did anything about it. Right. And so each deployment, the line moved. So that by 10 years later, you know, and I get into it in the book, you get Britt Slabinski seven years later, actually from that end since five years later, asking for a head on a platter. And there's a debate about whether it was metaphoric or whether it was literal, but some of his men took it as a direct order right. and tried to obey and comply with it. And that was just one of what was a very bad and very rough deployment in which there was a view that the only way to defeat the Taliban was to be more savage than the savages. Right. 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 Dehumanize the enemy and treat them as as they treat uh, the civilian population. Right. And so it's not just it's not just warfare, but there's also psychological warfare yes. involved. And so what I would say is is that what you there is a through line from what happened in the in the immediate aftermath of Roberts Ridge um, to what happens later. Right. It's a it's a it's a culture, um, and it's a there's a lack of accountability, um, you know, and that's that's part of one of the one of the central stories. I mean, unfortunately, and, and so where the, were the officers? Why weren't the officers pulling them back or or like saying, hey, like we like we need to change these guys out. Like we need we need somebody to come in and fill in for them so they can decompress because like they're wound really tight right now. It's an excellent question. Um, the shortest answer is, is that in many of the cases, not all, but many of the cases, the officers who were leading these men were, you know, at SEAL Team 6, the respect for officers from the enlisted comes from guys who had the kind of experience they did, who had gone through Green Team, who were, you know, were trained and qualified as assaulters. After 9-11, in several cases, because they had to surge up numbers, officers were allowed in who had not gone through green team. So immediately you have a problem mm -hmm. because those officers have no respect from the enlisted. Mm -hmm. And so the officers are leading from behind mm -hmm. and from the position of they need the respect of the men and the way to be respected is to be liked. Mm -hmm. You don't get liked by by being enforcing discipline and good order, you know, good order and discipline as the mm -hmm. navy uh, requires it. And so what you have are are officers who look the other way. You have officers who encouraged it, sometimes not using, you know, there's a, I mean, one of the things that's hard to write about are all the euphemisms and, mm. and you know, there's no directed. It's, it, it, you know, they sent messages just with looks, you know, mm. with body language. Could you dive a little bit deeper into the culture of each of the squadrons? Because I think this part is really interesting in how each squadron in Dev Group has its own identity and how that kind of expressed itself over the years. Being a parent can be really challenging. It's normal to feel uncertain about whether you're doing the right things to raise healthy and happy children. That's why Child and Family Resource Network focuses on connecting pregnant parents and those with kids under the age of five with free support services to help them build confidence in their parenting journey. Everyone deserves to have someone they can turn to for support with parenting. Visit childandfamilyresourcenetwork.org today. 
Being a parent can be really challenging. Child and Family Resource Network focuses on connecting pregnant parents and those with kids under the age of five with free support services to help them on their parenting journey. Everyone deserves someone they can turn to for help with parenting. Visit childandfamilyresourcenetwork.org today. At Baker's, no matter where you order free pickup, you get the same great deals as you'd get in store. So you can save when you order during band practice or at the dog park or wherever. Start your cart with the Baker's app and save from wherever today. Baker's, fresh for everyone. $35 order minimum. Restrictions may apply. Subject to availability. You can save an extra $10 when you spend 40 or more on a great selection of participating items. Just look for the signs and save at Baker's. Yeah, sure. So, um, you know, there are historically the squadrons were um, red. Well, original ones were, were gold and blue, which reflected the colors of the Navy at the time. Uh, red uh, is quickly added uh, into it. Later, there is uh, gray, which are boats. There's black and eventually silver. That's the rough. Uh, get it. Each then um, develops a name. They have their own flag and identity. Um, gold uh, were the Crusaders or the Knights, depending on the year that, that shifted. Um, the uh, Red Squadron were the Redmen and had a Native American mascot with two uh, tomahawks uh, across. Uh, uh, blue are the uh, uh, Pirates with the Jolly Roger uh, flag. Uh, black, which is an intelligence. Um, I actually don't know their name, but they have a, a horse with, uh, with two lightning bolts. Um, and then uh, later, Silver, uh, they're the raiders. They have sort of a shield, but w- one of everything. They've got a knife. They've got a hatchet um, and a skull face uh, to sort of reflect all of them because they were the newest of the units. The, 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 what you're asking about is really about the three, blue, gold, the, uh, and... The assault squadrons. Yeah, the original assault squadrons, blue, gold, and red. Um, and prior to nine... There was always a culture involved. Um, they were defined in different generations. The, uh, but there, the, the Native American subculture in the, you know, one of the traditions that in Red Squadron was to, once you were drafted into the squadron after uh, making it through selection and green team, you had to yard in. And yarding in, you had to wear a, uh, a traditional, and I don't know which tribe, Native American uh, headpiece, and then you had to, to uh, drink a yard of beer that had a, I don't know if it was, remember which hard alcohol it is at the bottom. Um, and if you could do that, you you were in. Um, and they had a culture which was known as sort of harder, not smarter. Um, they were, their culture was you met violence with more violence. And you solved problems by being stronger and bigger, right? That was a, a the psyche that had developed within that unit. Um, Blue uh, had... You know, different parts and and different places, uh, their subculture, you know, the way I really understand most of the subculture was in the kind of, um, unfortunately, the kind of atrocities and and desecration. They each had their own kind of desecration, basically. And and it could move around, um, but the, you know, blue used knives um, and were uh, known for skinning. Red used the hatchets. Gold, there's some things that I didn't put in the book. Uh, Sometimes it was because I didn't want to, there's enough's enough. There's only a a certain amount of, of, um, you know, some of this stuff is gruesome and and it it was, gold had a different style um, is the best way I could say it. And they had some things that they did that were pretty disturbing. 
what they had all in common was um, they were sort of, you know, one of the, the senior enlisted said to me, look, there, there are sort of three responses in our guys in how they experience violence. Some, their first instinct upon experiencing up close intense violence that is the business, recoil and they self-select out. And actually after Roberts Ridge, there were a lot of guys in red team that left SEAL Team 6, several who left the SEALs altogether. Um, it wasn't spoken about, it was just understood that it was, hey, it's not for me. There was another kind which fits along, you know, I think culturally um, more of the red squadron, red team, which was um, to meet violence with more violence. Mm -hmm. There was a third, which I think is the most, actually the most interesting, the hardest to write about because it, it is an outsider, which is that there were some who uh, saw art as some, I mean, violence as a sort of art, which is to say, you use it the least amount possible mm -hmm. and only when necessary and you're looking for solutions to a problem. I mean, I think, by the way, it's probably common in other units, right? You, you're given a task and you're looking for a way to not kill, um, to accomplish your mission. And um, a lot of the, the operators and the, the senior enlisted who uh, were described to me fitting in that category for whatever reason fell into blue. And I don't know, actually I can't speak to why that culture uh, within the pirates may have uh, existed. They also had, you know, they were off the rails for a couple of years. Um, they just have different, you know, it's the way they compete with each other. It's the way they differentiate from each other. And it happened organically. I, um, I mean, in some cases, I would think that like violence, you know, you meet violence with more violence is an appropriate solution. Um, but you're talking about not just violence, not just violence of action or, or hitting targets harder or expanding operations, but we're going into skinning. We're going into things that are, are probably not healthy expressions of of that type of violence. Yeah, and I'm not I, I'm not I'm, I'm not su I'm not suggesting that um uh meeting violence with more violence is necessarily wrong. Right. And in by any way illegal. It is, you know, as you can tell me, right? The job is one of aggression, but it is also and you know the the what everyone will tell you from SEAL Team 6 of course is is that the main skill is knowing when to be aggressive and when not to be aggressive, right? right? The, the, when you dial it down to the most basic thing, it's when to shoot and when not to shoot. Right. When, to, when you're justified. The escalation this, of force. The escalation of force. Right. And so um, I think that it is on all of these things you have in, in a soft unit, you're living on a knife's edge and you need a leash. You need some kind of discipline to hold it together or you go to the wrong side. And I think at SEAL Team 6 in particular, they have this problem, they ride this edge, they recruit and, and select for guys who are hyper-aggressive, who look to cook, cut corners, to solve problems and, and come up with solutions. If you ain't cheating, you ain't trying concept, right? right. And the problem is, is that what, and, and this is someone, this is, these are SEALs telling me this, older SEALs telling me this, that was fine prior to 9-11, but no one in the military thought about the effects of 15 to 20 years of warfare in up-close violence. Right on the, the secondary and tertiary effects for operators. Yeah, I mean, I don't think um, many of us, certainly not myself, have a problem with shooting terrorists in the face, you know, in combat. 
but I want to talk about some things that I do think are problematic. Um, tell us about the bleed out videos. What was that about? Well, um, there was one uh, SEAL in particular early on uh, in Red Team who was uh, on some of the early deployments whose job was um, filming uh, after the operation to identify, you know, who had been killed um, and, you know, give you know, sort of crime scene photos, if you will, uh, for headquarters and higher. And um, he took a particular glee um, in replaying the videos in their hooches, basically back at Bagram afterwards, he'd get the group together and watch the videos over and over and, and would do a sort of uh, countdown of watching people people expire mm -hmm. um and you know in and of itself in it, it was it's it's tasteless but it's not necessarily illegal what um the members of seal team six the leaders of seal team six that i had interviewed who told me about them said was the problem was it was a very easy to spot sign early on that there was a lust for this there was something that was inappropriate going on in terms about of making snuff films yeah about the about the enjoyment <laughs> something part might that, be wrong. that it was a sign that there was a there was something that needed to be reined in and watched closely right in and of itself it may not be you weren't going to bring someone up on charges on it but it was a it was a sign that there was a problem and no one would say anything about it they were sort of laughing and and, and it kept on going for you know it went on for about two deployments i think and that seal later was kicked out because he he um he struck a teammate, he, he got drunk at, uh, on deployment and pistol whipped one of his teammates. So, you know, and then the CIA hired him. Um, what about, you yeah. mentioned in the, in the book also that they were staging like martial arts matches at some point? Is that in the book? Yeah. Well, uh, the martial arts, I mean, cause he, he talked about, uh, Dwayne Dieter, right? And that, and then they like, no, 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 not that. They're. The martial arts match. It's all right. We can go on to uh, the the scalping. It, I, the well, you can ask me. I thought that was something that I didn't put in. Um, which, if I didn't put it in, I can. You know, I I don't want to. Re it's reportable if it's in the book. If it's not in the book, I, you know, while while I may have enough to support it uh, in terms yeah, of reporting, no, I don't want to. It's mentioned in the book. Um, but I mean, we can we move on to the uh, the the hatchets and. If you can tell us how they migrated into uh, into SEAL Team Six, how these guys started carrying them, and, and I mean, what the hell they were carrying them on target for? Um, so there was a uh, prior to 9/11, there was a, a SEAL operator named Kevin Holland who was in Red Team, who was a uh, avid outdoorsman, and was uh, I don't know if he's from North Carolina. I think he's from North Carolina, and he happened to be friends with. Um, the bladesmith uh, Daniel uh, Dan Winkler, who at the time was best known in that community for having made all of the um, appropriate uh, era pieces, weapons for the movie Last of the Mohicans. And um, Holland ended up leaving the SEALs prior to 9-11. After 9-11, he wanted to come back. SEAL Team 6 said he would have to do a deployment on the white side. He refused, so he uh, asked Delta if he could join. They said, if you can pass the uh, the course, you know, in the selection you're in, he became a member of C squadron. Um, and he got Winkler to, um, excuse me, to make, uh, these, uh, hatchets, tomahawks for his teammates in Delta. 
They were numbered. The original ones on the handles had like 001. I don't know if it was two two digits or three digits, but 01 or 001 up through you know 10 or 11. Um, and they were deployed. They were used by and carried uh, by Delta in the early years of the war in Iraq. 04, I think. Uh, 05. At that time, um, SEAL Team 6 was being assigned to do deployments, onesie twosies, do deployments with um, CAG. And uh, the SEALs saw uh, and the, um, some of the SEALs who were from Red Team and then later Red Squadron understood, you know, Kevin Holland was, was a former Red Squadron guy. And they sort of, you know, came upon the idea that, hey, we're Red Squadron, we're the Red Men, we should have these tomahawks. So Red Team at that time was led by a young commander named uh, Wyman Howard. And Howard and his master chief, uh, Jimmy Lindell, um, came up with the idea of getting donors to pay for making them their custom made. Uh, I think on the, the commercial market, they cost 600 bucks. Um, I think to make, they're about 300 bucks. So uh, he got people to donate three $350 to have them made, and then would hand them out to every member of Red Squadron who had a year of service in the squadron. Um, at that same time, Howard was giving sort of pep talks about, because it was the Red Men, about bloodying your hatchet, getting, you know, getting blood on your hatchet. Well, you know, at times it was a euphemism for, you know, did you shoot? Did you, did you kill? You know, were you, were you uh, in action and, and in combat? Um, and Unfortunately, those were words and just the right um, encouragement for guys in Red Squadron to start using the hatchets. Not everyone carried them, by the way. I've talked to plenty of people in Red Squadron who felt that there was zero military utility or use for them. Um, others who thought, you know, it's great for knocking down locks and doors. But yes, they use the hatchets. Um, some of them use the hatchets to desecrate bodies, um, in part to leave a message for the enemy when they picked their uh, comrades up um, on the battlefield to bury them, that Red Squadron had been there, that the Americans had been there, that there was psychological, there was a psychological warfare component to it. Um, it wasn't a direction, it wasn't an order, it was known, it was understood, it was going on, it was well known within SEAL Team 6. Um, and there's another case going back to, you know, asking where are the officers and what are they doing? You know, as long as there weren't reports coming up to the 05 level or the 06 level or outside the unit that this was going on, you know, who felt bad for uh, the enemy? And that took on a life, but it, it, I think it's, it, it happens to be pretty symbolic about, of, you know, the lawlessness and the, the, the sort of renegade culture that took over at, you know, during the, the peak of, of the wars. I'll just uh, read this briefly, and if you don't want to comment deeper on it, it's it's fine. But uh, this is on 149. The commanding officer of SEAL Team 6 at that time, Captain Scott Moore, and his deputy, Captain Tim Szymanski, received reports from the battlefield. Their operators were using the weapons to hack dead and dying militants. The reports were not limited to Howard's Redmen. Small groups within the command were skinning the dead, and others practiced mixed martial arts on detainees. The news that American servicemen were engaged in such senseless brutality would seem to shock the conscience. But at the command, no one said or did anything about it. Okay, so um, at the time that those reports came in, I believe in sometime in 2007, and at the time, uh, Gold Squadron had been deployed in Iraq 
and the description of Gold Squadron. Um, again, let's make the caveat here. We're not talking about everyone in a squadron. We're not even talking about everyone in a troop. We are talking largely about onesie twosies, um, but they traveled. It, mm -hmm. it, it was like having a little virus that would go from one group to another, especially if they moved from one squadron to another. Um, they were, as it was described to me, um, there were some operators in Gold Squadron who uh, would hit a compound, would uh, separate the men from the women and the children. Um, the, as it was described to me, if you knew who the bad guy was, or there was someone who got lippy and aggressive, um, there was a period of time where um, Team Six operators, again, not all of them, would bring your offender into a room, two seals, one would stand by the door with uh, his uniform on, everything, his equipment on. Um, the other one would explain, you know, here's a question, did they do it through a translator? How did it, basically, he would take off his gear and say, we're gonna grapple. If you can win, you can walk out of here. Um, it was never possible, of course, because the teammate was always standing there, and um, they would grapple and use their skills to kill uh, a target. Now, they, they were on site, so there were all sorts of legal gray areas. They were not detainees, because um, they had not yet been detained, and part of the, the purpose was to take that individual out to the rest who were getting TQ'd at tactical questioning, and it make it very clear verbally and non-verbally that this is what happens if you don't cooperate. Um, as it was explained to me, this was not done willy-nilly with guys who, you know, the, the people that they were um, practicing their MMA and martial arts skills on were not innocent. They were legitimate targets. Not in that scenario. Let's be clear. This was not um, an acceptable thing. But in the in the, but they were bad guys. In the, yeah, for, the, for lack of a better term, they were bad guys. And in the spectrum of things, no one in the U.S. military was going to have any concern about, about a, this particular individual right. having been deceased. Right. Um, you know, it's, it's uh, a pretty awful and upsetting description of, of it. There was a, um, you know, I looked into it a lot. One of the, the descriptions I got of why was... Um, the guys didn't have the ability to use their martial art training and skills in any other capacity. Mm -hmm. They had done all of this training. They were aggressive. Um, they were doing a lot of missions. Now, you know, I can't tell you how many of those incidents there were. There was more than one. Mm -hmm. That I can say. Um, and I, the only reason why I wasn't sure, I couldn't remember what I had put in. Uh, in the book, there yeah. there are certain you know I, I try to limit it uh, sometimes to sort of the top level, um, but you know it it it's sort of self-explanatory. It's a pretty awful uh, thing, and I think you know I think all of this fits in the category of um, there's so much that we don't know. You know there is more that will never be shared um, outside of those who are there. And it's a, you know, it's a very dark place. You know, there were some, some really bad stuff that went on. 
Tell us more about Wyman, who seems to be at the center of a good deal of this. And what, he's the commander of Warcom now? He is. The, he's a two-star uh, rear He's admiral. been pitched in the press, I mean, in the Associated Press, as like the guy who's coming to clean everything up. That's, he's very good at media. Um, and he has done, by the way, let's give him credit where credit is due. Since he took over Warcom um, in the aftermath of the Eddie Gallagher stuff, mm -hmm. he um, has instituted some changes to the way the SEALs are, are organized and the way they're trained, especially the officers, um, that the leadership courses and stuff like that, that, that are going to be beneficial. They will be, you know, they're, they're, they're good. I will say that there's certainly a, a very strong feeling that Howard's changes um, with the size and makeup of the platoons of the white side seals is a um, quantity, uh, you know, getting rid of the notion of quantity over quality and going back the other way to pre 9-11. Um, there's another, you know, more cynical view, which is that if you dump the number of seals and you keep um, a good, a larger portion of them from going abroad, you're going to have fewer problems, um, which is, you know, what you hope for when you want to ride out a two-year uh term and right. tour, get your third star and move right. on. Um, Wyman Howard is your absolute best example of um, what SEAL Team 6 was and what it became after 9-11. Uh, Howard is a descendant of, I think, two admirals uh, on, on either side of his uh, family. His father was a captain uh, in the Navy. He, Naval Academy graduate, um, was a West Coast SEAL, I think he was SEAL, SEAL Team 1 and SEAL Team 8. Um, he was uh, at one point the lowest ranked officer um, at his, at his uh, rank at, on the East Coast, I believe. He was eventually allowed to select for, he wasn't selected, he failed selection to SEAL Team 6. However, at the time, the deputy commander of SEAL Team 6 had been his uh, his. OIC um, and his superior at his previous uh, SEAL team liked him and convinced uh, Bert uh, Callen to let him go into Green Team. Um, he was brought into Green Team and the uh, instructors at Green Team were uh, told that unless he, you know, I've been using this hypothetically, unless he kills someone during training, you can't fail him. And so he was allowed to pass. Now he, by the description of guys who were in his um, in his class at Green Team, he was not the worst. He was in the middle. He was kind of mediocre. Not the worst, definitely not the best. Um, point was, was that he actually hadn't earned his way in to SEAL Team 6, right? Mm -hmm. The standard was relaxed so that, and as one person said, Callan said, look, he, I was told he could do paperwork very mm -hmm. well. He was smart, and he was going to help us administratively. Um, goes through the Green Team, gets into Green Team, um, gets put into Red Team. He gets fired or pushed out at Red Team, um, 9-11 happens, he's in what later became black team. He basically got uh, pushed forward. He was in Afghanistan early as part of AFO, uh -huh. working for Scotty Miller, and resurrected his career. He goes back uh, as the OIC of Red Team a few years later. Um, at that point, they were still the teams and not squadrons. And he does this thing, what, what, what makes Howard unusual is is that he ultimately did essentially two they I guess they call it a double pump he did two rotations as the leader of red first it was as red team and then it later it was the commanding officer of red squadron mm -hmm. and so he had an unusually long period of time at red squadron mm -hmm. and at that time with that group and their native american 
identity and pushing of the hatchets, you start to see, and remember, again, it's Red Squadron that went through what happened up on Roberts Ridge, right? When those guys who get drafted into Red go into the team room, there is Neil Roberts' bent weapon on the wall um, as a reminder of, of, you know, the sacrifice and what they lost. Um, and so Howard is, by all accounts, uh, incredibly intelligent, very bright, very hardworking, um, and, you know, was known to essentially look the other way um, when his men were out using the hatchets to desecrate bodies. Um, there were, uh, you know, he, he ultimately ended up as the commanding officer of SEAL Team 6 as a, as a captain, um, went to JSOC. Uh, then he was at, uh, he did a stint um, at one of the DOD, I don't remember if it was, um, it, it, if it was NGA, um, I can't remember which of the intelligence agencies um, he served in. He got a job in the Pentagon and then um, he ended up at, at Soxent um, down in Tampa and then he ended up at Warcom. Um, and so if you sort of take his example singularly, a guy who was not qualified or didn't qualify mm -hmm. to make it to SEAL Team 6, but because of connections was allowed to, mm -hmm. right? And at, and at that time, the um, skipper at SEAL Team 6, Joe Kernan, sorry, at the time which 9-11 happens, um, they plus up, at that time he would only promote and allow in um, officers who had come from the Naval Academy. Right. So there was, you know, within a culture, there was an, another subculture, elitism, you know, a mix between a country club um, and a fraternity, right? And you had someone who wasn't qualified or hadn't qualified, got in anyway. Um, you know, sort of the syndrome of being born with a, a silver spoon in your mouth. Right. Right. And, and then you end up in a leading very aggressive guys. Mm -hmm. And how do you maintain their respect? How do you earn their respect? It's not through discipline. Uh -huh. um, that's how it's been described to me. There are most of the operators that I ever interviewed who worked under or for Wyman love him. He was highly aggressive. He matched. Um, he, he very much looked at what McChrystal was doing and was putting out and matched it. Mm -hmm. If you you know if you're not out operating, you're not you, you ain't doing it right. It's very aggressive. Later, there were problems um, at SEAL Team Six under his command um, with officers who disagreed with how aggressive. Uh, he was. I was told recently that in the Afghan papers there is a lot of description of um, Howard's leadership uh, on the battlefield in Afghanistan um, and criticism about the over-aggressiveness uh, and posture of the unit. I, I haven't seen them myself, so I can't comment about you know how accurate that is. Um, but he's sort of your best example. He has. Um, he's he's got a. Um, I think he's got a story. <sighs> That started and also gives you a sense of um, the SEAL Team 6, at least part of the SEAL Team 6 culture of the branding. He and his younger officers um, used to sit around and discuss how great, how great they were as leaders mm -hmm. amongst themselves. Red, and, and the logic went like this. Red Squadron are the best operators at SEAL Team 6. SEAL Team 6 is the best unit in the U.S. military. And SEAL Red Squadron officers lead these men, ergo, Red Squadron officers are the best leaders of men. And therefore, when we are out of the military, we should become, our officers should become senators and presidents. That story was now, meanwhile, that was discussed among, you know, Wyman and, and his younger, his junior officer corps. 
at a time. It was a running joke at the rest of the command with the officer corps that it was all invented, that it was this presumption that there was something special about them. You know, uh, we can get into a question of SEALs and leader, leadership and SEALs later. But um, by the time he ends up in Tampa as a, I don't know if he had a second star yet, but definitely had a one star, the story now went like this. Um, there's a group of SEAL Team 6 officers who have selected me to be the first member of SEAL Team 6 to run for president of the United States. And, you know, I, I actually, I wanted to double check that uh, recently because I, I put it, I did an excerpt for the book at The Intercept and um, I put in some new stuff in there um, and I called a, a source from the Pentagon who knew Wyman well and I said, you know, I, I had already heard the story from several people from the SEALs, but I, I, I called a friend uh, uh, at the Pentagon um, and I said, have you ever heard this story about Wyman, you know, running for president. He said, are you kidding me? Howard tells anyone who will listen, he is going to be the first SEAL team president <laughs> in American history. So you get a sense of the ambition, right? And the, the, the mindset, which, you know, a massive ego, um, you know, often I think most people would agree has very little self-awareness. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, he's someone who I think when he went to Congress and, and, and AP covered it, his posture was, we are humble, right? I mean, everyone who's ever worked with him, and it, that is a word that has never come across anyone's mouth. Who's humble. Ever, humble. I mean, that was his problem at, at SEAL Team 6, was that there was virtually no humility. What, what do you think this guy's um, propensity, I mean, whatever people think about SEALs or SEAL Team 6 or whatever, um, as a previous uh, commander of the SEALs said, we have a problem that needs to be addressed. Uh, is Wyman the guy? I mean, can he do it? Can he can he reform and get them back on track? I, I think, as someone said to me, when Wyman was chosen as the commander of WARCOM, it was truly a case of um, picking the fox to guard the hen house. You cannot um, expect a SEAL Team 6 leader who was part of the creation of the problem and is also a product of the problem mm -hmm. at SEAL Team 6 that filtered down into the larger community over two decades to possibly be the person who could deliver the message that we have to clean up. Mm -hmm. Now, he's smart and he can make changes. And as, as I said, some of his fixes have been described to me as being very good. And in a couple of years or within a generation, there'll be a better officer core um, to some extent. That's about as far as it goes. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, I, I mentioned uh, earlier uh, or before we went on that um, there's a story. I, I'm going to uh, break a story, um, I think, when the Ukrainian, uh, assuming that there's any kind of resolution in Ukraine, but in the future, in the not too distant future, um, that is another, it's a smaller scandal, SEAL scandal, but it's a scandal and it will reflect exactly this issue, which is. Wyman is not Wyman Howard is not responsible at all for all of you know the problems. He's a he's he um, is a great example of where their culture went wrong, how it didn't correct itself, mm -hmm. um, and so the notion that he should be picked or being uh, the leader of the the larger community, I think is um, you know I've talked to a lot of current SEAL officers who were frankly disgusted when he was picked. Now, they had a thin bench and there was some recognition that on paper he was probably ideal, but um, they were not happy. The SEALs who, who were in the command long enough, um, who've been around um, and have worked with Howard, were not happy. Now, is, is, is it possible they just had an ax to grind? 
there are always axes to grind, and it very well could be that there are people who simply don't like him. There are a lot of people who don't like him. There are a lot of people who do like him. Mm -hmm. um, I, I try my best, I think, to recognize the difference between someone who doesn't like someone because of their personality mm -hmm. um, and someone who can point to, hey, here are, you know, are things A, B, C, D, and E that this person did when they were in charge mm -hmm. that were fundamentally wrong or misguided and certainly disqualifying for promotion, let alone, you know, such a position. So it's always the case, look, I think, you know, as an investigative journalist, as any journalist, when you're dealing with stories like this, everyone has some ax to grind. My job is to try to figure out what that ax is right. and, and, and adjust for it and, you know, accept what it is recognize where it is, you know, you find out that someone hates someone because, you know, that someone slept with someone's wife and that there's a, there's a personal beef right. or animus, and that may be it. That doesn't mean that what they're saying isn't true. Right. So. In the, uh, in the book, I mean, one of the things that people have to understand about the war on terror is that none of these units work by themselves, that there are all these enablers, that there's a joint special operations task force, and on and on and on with these different commands and, and task forces and so on. Uh, one of the elements the SEALs got detached to at various times of the, was the Omega teams. There's a very interesting story in your book about how a CIA officer tried to complain about some of these behaviors and to try to blow the whistle on it internally in the bureaucracy. Could you tell us about that and what, what happened to that guy? Sure. Um, first, I want to just say that, that one of the uh, sources for that section was a, at that time, was a member of the CIA, um, employee of the CIA, but who was a former SEAL and had um, a long um, experience with the SEALs and SEAL Team 6. Um, it's important, again, going back to just context and understanding, you know, um, where some of this information comes from and what the significance is of, of who's, who's telling you. Um, it's, I, now I'm, blanking on the year, but I think we're talking about 2008 or 2009 timeframe, I think 2009, um, there had been a series of joint operations going out. They weren't always Omegas that were going out together. Sometimes it was just, especially in Jalalabad, um, the uh, agency would use six to help them conduct uh, uh, operations if they didn't have much of a paramilitary, they didn't have a ground branch. Um, and what they kept seeing was a overaggression. Uh, there was, in fact, at that time, and we can get into this, um, there was an incident in which they'd gone out on an operation. Basically, the, the CIA said, look, we want you to get these, guys, these four guys out. We know they're in there. You know, they went in at 2 in the morning, 3 in the morning. Um, SEAL Team 6 goes in. I think at that time it was gold. Gold Squadron went in. Um, the targets were all sleeping. They were all armed, you know, had weapons next to them. They were legitimate targets. Um, they did a, a countdown um, and they uh, canoed, I think, six of the eight that were killed in the operation, came back out and were showing off the photos of what they had just done. The CIA, in particular, the agency officers there were furious because the guys that they had been asked to go out and get and detain, they wanted for interrogation and, and further intelligence exploitation. The mission was not to kill them. Um, they were 
legitimate targets in the sense that they had weapons mm. near them in their bed, but they were all sleeping. So it was, you know, possible to take them into custody. Um, that incident, along with several others like it, led to um, a former member of SEAL Team 6 who was then working for Ground Branch uh, named uh, Rick Smethers, Richard Smethers, um, who had been at 06 and had once been the captain at Bud's. He complained loudly to um, SEAL Team 6, first through the CIA and then to SEAL Team 6. Basically, their guys were off the rails and that they were committing war crimes and it was costing them in their area of operations. Um, it got very heated between the two sides and Smethers um, and the CIA basically warned that if they didn't pull Gold Squadron at the time, they were gonna go to the press with these accusations. There was a gentleman's agreement in part because Smethers was a former member of SEAL Team 6 and very respected from his era. Uh, he, had, he had been skipped over actually as, uh, to be uh, skipper of SEAL Team 6 prior to 9-11. Um, and some people felt that the reason why he was complaining was because he was bitter about that, but that's, a, that's an aside. Um, as it happened, Gold Squadron was uh, set to, to leave, and I don't remember which squadron was replacing them, but it, it happened to be that the, there was going to be a natural cycle anyway, and SEAL Team 6 basically asked CIA uh, to pull Smethers and let him cool down uh, outside of Afghanistan to go home and you know, basically cool the temperature down. And so they did, but there was an acknowledgement on all sides, both sides, that SEAL Team 6 was committing war crimes. They were violating the rules of engagement. They were violating the laws of armed uh, combat. But you know, you keep, you, you piss inside the tent, right? And so you, they came up with a solution in which both sides were happy mm -hmm. in the immediate near term, you know, and um, there was never any accountability. And that mm -hmm. it's a great example, again, of, of, you know, I think, I think the book is filled with incidents where there could have been accountability and there wasn't. I think what one thing to keep in mind is, is that it's, these are only the ones that are known because they became, at least internally, that something happened that triggered. That you know, other people knew about. That other people knew about. Mm -hmm. Much of what went on went on between two or three guys on an operation in a in a room, right? Mm -hmm. We'll never know about those things. Mm -hmm. And unless someone who was there talks about it, there's nothing to it's it, it can't be known. Right. Right. Well, and but that could be said about any unit. Like, you know, like we we don't like know when when it gets down to that small size, but sort of what you're kind of talking about in this is the overall the officer enlisted the 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 tendency to not self-correct but to just let things keep going even if it's a few guys are like they're like the you know the when you when you like pith a fish that schools like it you know like the rest of the school follows it because you know that's how they that's how psychology works right that's how right. people work um and i i mean some of the behaviors we're talking sounds sociopathic, and the, one of the things about sociopaths is they always have a stronger frame of reality, I think, than than the people around them. They are one hundred percent certain that their cause is right and and whatnot, and it's how like relationships go awry and whatnot with right. So, if you have a bunch of people who are emotional, angry, you know, at war, and then you have one person that isn't, you know, that it's doing these types of things, it sort of makes it a norm. 
Yeah. I, you know, I, I once interviewed a former um, command master chief of SEAL Team 6 from prior to 9-11, who told me that in the 80s, when uh, the last of the Vietnam-era SEALs were in the unit, one of the things they passed down to the younger guys about their experience in Vietnam was that if just one guy in the team was committing war crimes, it created a psychological cloud mm -hmm. over the re in time over the rest of the team right. that there were these nonverbal you know th these were things that weren't necessarily discussed but they became a, a, a it was like a disease a right. virus that would pass through the rest of the unit and go on for the rest of their lives and you know I will tell you that 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 plenty of the officers gave you know had conversations like this with some of with their men you know look don't do anything out there that you don't want that you can't live with right because you have to live with it for the rest of your life right the problem is is that there are people who think that they can live with it right or wanted to see and test right. the waters right? right and so that's not a necessarily a strong enough guide as you know if you're saying that one night and then the next night you're saying you know uh, did you get your hatchets bloodied Right. right, you know what? What'd you do with your hatchets, kind of thing, and so the I think the the psychological component to this is really important, and it was one that I asked Marcinko about. You know, what kind of screening did you do? Well, we only had the Minnesota test. Well, yeah, but you had a, a psych, right? And and you know, so you screened, and I interviewed that psych, and he, you know, he said, yeah, there was no screening. Marcinko picked who he liked, uh -huh. and. Uh, Marcinko said, yeah, I had the shrink there so that when the Navy assessed what I, the unit that I was creating on paper, I looked like I was doing all the right things. Right. And the psychologist, the shrink, his name was uh, Dr. Mike Whitley, who I interviewed actually not long before he, uh, he died shortly after, um, as it is Marcinko, I don't want to get a reputation. Um, and uh, what Whitley said was, look, there were a lot of great guys in the first couple of in the first group of, of SEAL Team 6 but there were several sociopaths right there was absolutely no way to screen them out because they hadn't done any the screening was as Marcico said who could drink with me who someone else had recommended who could drink with them and who could handle their liquor with me right and who they had served with and that was the that was the system that they used and I you know the other one I interviewed one of the Team 6's XO's that, that um, handled selection after Marcinko and he said it was exactly what was going on being a parent can be really challenging. It's normal to feel uncertain about whether you're doing the right things to raise healthy and happy children. That's why Child and Family Resource Network focuses on connecting pregnant parents and those with kids under the age of five with free support services to help them build confidence in their parenting journey. Everyone deserves to have someone they can turn to for support with parenting. Visit childandfamilyresourcenetwork.org today. Being a parent can be really challenging. It's normal to feel uncertain about whether you're doing the right things to raise healthy and happy children. That's why Child and Family Resource Network focuses on connecting pregnant parents and those with kids under the age of five with free support services to help them build confidence in their parenting journey. Everyone deserves to have someone they can turn to for support with parenting. Visit childandfamilyresourcenetwork.org today. It's interesting I, that uh, Delta had the same problem with their initial intake of guys that the psychologist pointed to one guy was like, no, don't take this guy. And 
I was told Beckwith overruled him and said, no, we want this guy because he's so good. That was Marshall Brown, who turned out to be a serial rapist and is still in federal prison to this day. So, I mean, the lesson, I think, is the selection process works when you actually use it. Um, and well, but, you know, but, you know, you guys can correct me if I'm wrong, is I understand it. The Delta's psychological portion of the selection uh, screening is much more rigorous and specific than SEAL Team 6. Now, nowadays, I don't think that would ever happen, but this was way back in 1980. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, yeah, and I think another thing I wanted to follow up on real quick, uh, or point out, I guess, is that, you know, there's something to be said um, for having some empathy for the operators, even ostensibly war criminals. Um, you can see, like, people flipping out just that we have a conversation, an open conversation like this. You know, these guys are war fighters, leave them alone. Um, and it really brought that to head when you were talking about how a lot of guys think they can handle this and they can't. And they acted like big badasses on target wanting to scalp people. Okay, here we are 10 years later and a lot of those dudes are cracking up. Uh, they're cracking up, they're having severe issues with PTSD, um, combine that with traumatic brain injuries. Um, these guys are, a lot of these guys are really struggling and I think there's a case to be made now that they need help. But I mean, also there's a lesson for leaders now Right, right at this moment, to police this kind of behavior, um, with the the longevity and the um, and the responsibility of taking care of your troops long term, um, and, and and you know maybe I, I understand how a younger soldier doesn't have the maturity or the wisdom to really understand that or think long term like that, but there is a responsibility on the leadership, if nothing else, to police that kind of behavior. And, and that's another way of taking care of your soldiers. That, you know, I'm, Jack, I'm really glad that you, you raised that point because it's something that my sources for the last five or six years have said uh, sort of privately, you know, in describing what their motivations were for talking and what they wrestle with and were upset, most upset with. And I, I just give you an example. I'm going to paraphrase a little bit. Um, between there were about four. Um, uh, I don't like to get into the difference between which sources are officers and which are are NCOs. I will tell you that that I was most always most surprised um, that the 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 toughest language I heard about the disgust and the frustration came from the NCOs. Mm -hmm. um, and given what their the dynamic, they basically were just disgusted with the the failure of of their officers to to. Um, get a hold of the problem when they were warned. One of the things that someone said to me once that that really shook me was, "Look, and I'm, again, I'm paraphrasing. We failed these guys. Mm -hmm. We sent these guys out into a meat grinder mm -hmm. over and over and over again. We gave them none of the tools to handle the parts that that we gave them no warning or or ability to handle what they were going to experience um, and come back. And there was a line." that we had to hold for them because of this issue, right? That if they cross that line, they're not, we're not gonna send you to jail. We need to pull you back and teach you, we don't do this, right? right. That's how you fix it. This wasn't, the, 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 the genesis of this book and the, is not, oh my God, all of these guys have to go to jail. It came from SEALs who were, SEAL leaders, SEAL Team 6 leaders who were saying, we failed these kids. Mm -hmm. I failed these kids. I tried to do this. I tried to do that. Some retired and left 
the military because they tried to get SEAL Team 6 leaders to, to deal with war crimes, and they were ignored. They were refused. We don't have a problem. It's not a problem. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know what you're talking about. I mean, it was it it was a and and so the 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 empathy here is and again it goes back to why I don't name for the most part I don't name the younger operators. Um, I think part of what I was trying to do in the book, and I know that it's probably hard for people to understand that most people to understand this, especially if you're coming from the perspective that this is some kind of anti-seal book. It's not what. This is, is a description of failed leadership and how you, what the cost is to the men who do it. And I, and I think, although it may be subtle, one of the ways I tried to do that in the reporting was the tone that I took in writing about it. Mm -hmm. um, I made a very uh, concerted effort to never be strident about any of what, you know, the wrongdoing and never to uh, try to, you know, I, I tried to, to, to pull my punches a little, actually, um, in the reporting because you, you, you just want to get the, the message across through the information. You let the information speak for itself and the reporting, the facts speak for itself. There was no need to editorialize or to suggest that, you know, anything, uh, there's some kind of inherent evil here and right. all like that. And that came from very much from my sources who were saying, look, the, the people who are suffering here are the guys that we sent out there who did 13 to 15 deployments whose families are silently suffering right. because they don't even have a name for the, the yes, it's PTSD, yes, they, they're, they're trauma, but they don't have a name for how it is affecting, it will affect their family now. It right. will affect their next generation of their right. family because of the way, you know, the kids are raised in, right. in that environment. Right. And although they have some of the best psychologists and they do, you know, they have a great, uh, post-career community for for supporting each other and they have there are some um, initiatives that I've heard about that that seem promising overall they don't do much right I mean Matt Bissonette said it in his book I mean his second book you know he said we get trained at everything to the T he said but they do not train us whatsoever for the emotional toll and impact of what being on the speeding train will do to you right right well I mean you know uh Flib still, you know, I think, I, I mean, I hope he's trading it, I don't know, but, you know, he's very, you know, he was open about the, the post-traumatic stress he has, you know, I, I think Luttrell, you know, when he talks about, you know, feeling like a coward, you know, like, the, you know, the and I think those are the things, I think that, like, and there are going to be people who watch this and think this is an anti-SEAL uh episode if right? not anti-american or anti-american or anti-whatever <laughs> and and i'll tell you just for myself i'm all about killing the bad guys i mean fuck them up right they're they're bad guys like that that's you know i i even i agree with some more of the off the book you know off the board type methods but but it doesn't do the war effort it doesn't do the unit and it doesn't do the soul any good to to get caught up in the combat as anything other than combat, anything other than, you know, the mission, when it become when you make it personal, yeah. when you make it personal, when, when you engage in, you know, uh, you know, mutilations or things like that, it, it, the person is dead. Regardless of any of that, that's something that, that lives like, that's not something I, I think, that most people like 
you know, like you said, it's a virus, right? It, it's like suicide. If if a suicide happens in a unit, it's a mimetic. It, it's a meme. It, it's a virus of the mind. It spreads, and and suicides will will increase in that unit. But but social behaviors are the same type of thing. This is the same type of thing that. There are people who would never, there are SEALs who would never in their entire life do something like this. It wouldn't occur to them. But if it becomes sort of this thematic thing where it's acceptable. Yeah, normalized. Normalized. Then, you know, when we're in this environment of combat and chaos and emotions and loss and, and we're dealing with all these different things, you know, we're, we're vulnerable. Right. And so to be subjected to that and then to not have anybody, the officers reach in and 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 yank that Leaving back there flapping. Yeah. yeah. To have the to, to not, you know, and to cover it up. And I'm not again, I'm not saying send the guys to jail, like take care of them, like make it so this isn't a normal thing, because 20 years from now, like you said, this is a family thing. Right. And then it becomes a generational thing. You know, one of the stories in the book, speaking about Slab, was this incident in 2007 with, uh, I think he was an E6 at the time, may have been e, I think he was E6, who uh, his commanding officer caught a glimpse of him uh, trying to cut a head off of a, of a Taliban uh, fighter that they had uh, killed in an operation. And Slabinski, who was the master chief at the time, had told his men that he wanted a head on a platter. And there was, you know, some of the older guys heard it as as it could have easily been, which was just metaphorical and, and slab being dramatic, but the younger guys didn't know the difference. And so, uh, and they, there had been a ton of groupthink within within their unit at the time, within their troop in particular. Um, and there had been war crimes going on for the whole deployment. And um, that young man, they, they covered it up. They got out of the NCIS investigation. Everyone was cleared. But that SEAL, that operator, eventually, I think, took another eight years or so. He eventually uh, basically became medically unfit to deploy. He was a psychological mess. He left the unit after he, he pulled himself from deploying. They sent him to the, the psychs. He was not fit. They sent him to group two, um, to the white side where he could, uh, and at, at that point he said he didn't want to, said to others, not to me, um, that he ever wanted to deploy again. And as I understand it, he has spent years in intensive therapy yeah. um, because he was young and impressionable and with a group of seasoned, enlisted, not officers, enlisted members of SEAL Team 6 who believed um, that chopping the heads off the enemy right. was going to win the war. Right. And there were, you know, th they, there was some pulling back of guys after that incident there was some yelling um but they also covered it up and there was zero accountability fast forward three years later when slabinski is going to come back uh, for a senior position at the command the officers and the, and the other master chiefs at the command voted him out basically refused to let him back in they blacklisted him and that actually acts as the only time that that i know of um, and anyone else knows of that SEAL Team Six held any of their own accountable for this failure of leadership and 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 war crimes. And it and and as someone said to me, that we're never going to send them to to the brig. We were never going to send them to NCIS or or rat them out. We just never wanted him back at SEAL Team Six. Right. We wanted to send a message. Now, fast forward to that. 
he gets awarded a medal, he's upgraded to the Medal of Honor. And that became, you know, there is, just as Gallagher was, and I think, um, you know, Dave Phillips did just a fantastic job in Alpha describing the cultural war inside the teams mm-hmm. um, between, you know, the 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 good and the ugly, really, is what it is. Right. And, and unfortunately, the ugly really won in that case. Um, you know, when Slabinski gets kicked out of SEAL Team 6, or blacklisted is, is the more accurate, it's a good description of when some where the sh- where they were able to write the ship on their own. It's an mm-hmm. example. It's a, it's a singular example, mm-hmm. which is part of the problem. When he gets awarded the upgrade to the Medal of Honor, it is absolutely a message to everybody else in SEAL Team 6 and in the teams that the cover-up wins. Mm-hmm. That there is, you know, you are giving out the highest award for valor the military that the government gives out. And it's not a question of what may or may not have occurred up on top of, of Tucker Gar. Mm-hmm. Although we that's certainly an issue that was that was brought, what, yeah. you know, Chapman. But regardless of that, and that's not one that I I I you know, never fought in knee, knee, you know, thigh deep snow on the top of a mountain, you know, under an ambush. Um, but for everything that occurred after the fact, which, by the way, the regulations of the Medal of Honor are, you know, their actions and conduct after an event are are part of the consideration. Mm-hmm. And there were multiple incidents with Slabinski. Um, he was, you know punted from a unit because mm-hmm. of war crimes and mm-hmm. for, for illegal uh, allegations of illegal orders, right? And so when he won the upgrade, there were guys, I, the, my phone was, was just the groaning, you know, I'm disgusted. Mm-hmm. We're disgusted with, mm-hmm. with, with the message that this is sending to everybody else in the teams who knows. Um, and, and the truth, right? So, and that, that's what the book is about. It's not, I'm not trying to make a judgment I'm literally just trying to put out the story as it is, as it was, and as it is. I, I feel as though the, the the whole Chapman Medal of Honor episode, uh, even notwithstanding a Slavinsky, like not, but but what the SEALs did, what the SEAL Command did during that, that speaks more to me about the overall, like not speaks more to me. But that, to me, is more demonstrative of the the, the problem yeah. with with the the seal command that that, that seal culture. Then, or not than any of these other things. But I think it it is easier to point to that outside of saying, well, you know, you have cover ups on regular army bases, right? Where you know there's a sexual assault and the commanding officer covers it up because he doesn't want it to be his problem. Um, and and again, I, I agree that there's this history of this where it's in the command. I'm just saying that the whole Chapman Medal of Honor thing shows sort of what that naval command, what that SEAL command, how they act. Because when it came, when Chapman's name came up, they immediately, immediately turned on him. Yep. You know. And here was somebody who Slavinsky originally for his, uh, you know, his, uh, the, uh, air, uh, the air cross, right? No, that he would get the Navy cross or the, uh, no for Chapman. Oh, for Chapman. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. Who, you know, Slavinsky had said he saved our lives when he took bunker one, he saved our lives. Right. 
give it, I hope he gets any award. Then when it comes to the upgrade, the SEALs are so fervently against it and, and undermining it and, and everything else. And to me, that is like, who does that? That's the, yeah, that's the part that's dishonorable about it. I mean, a botched operation, it happens, you know? You know, I, I, I don't even blame Slabinski for leaving him per se because nobody knows what was going on. They were under heavy fire. There was snow on the ground. You know, Robert's body was there. The, the Zelensky never acknowledged it. could be that he thought that was that. Nobody knows. Like, I, I don't even necessarily blame him for that because in the fog of war, the only person who knows what happened is the person that's there. And even sometimes they don't know what happened. But but the way the Navy handled it is like, okay, that's that's what you expect, you know, or that's what that well, reputation... Well, that's the tell. And I, I you know, I, there is a reason why that story ultimately is you know, the central sort of spine of the book with three chapters because it's a, you know, it's a tragic saga mm -hmm. of, you know, the, the, the best and the worst. And yes, the worst part about it is not, you know, even what happened up on the mountain at all. Mm -hmm. What if the worst was the, um, the way in which they went 14 years after the event, everything that they claimed happened now changed mm -hmm. and so that, um, they could protect their brand, their honor, their guy. Mm -hmm. And that is the part that, you know, it's dishonorable. That's the part that's, I think, the, the um, you know, for, the, for people not in the SEALs who served in the military, who have served with the SEALs, that's the thing you hear the most mm -hmm. is like, yeah, well, that's how they are, right? Mm -hmm. that's, and and I, don't, I don't like to make generalizations. I haven't, you know, I haven't served. I've never served with a SEAL. I'm, I, I can't speak to that. Um, but as a reporter... That story is prevalent. That's the story you hear over and over, which is, you know, they have their brand looks like this and they make a lot of money with that brand. And anything that goes against that brand or suggests that they are not totally heroic and totally flawless or that the story that they told may not be as accurate as they as it as they proceed, you know, made it sound. Um, they circle the wagons. Mm -hmm. Speaking of which, there's one thing I definitely wanted to ask you about. Um, about somebody who's not interested in profiting off the brand necessarily, or, or at all. Um, we've heard a lot about the Bin Laden raid. There's a lot about it in your book. We've heard a lot about O'Neill and Bissonette, a lot out there about those guys. Tell us about this one operator whose call sign was Red. Red, yeah. Well, Red should be known um, as the uh, SEAL operator who uh, fired uh, into Bin Laden and effectively killed him. Uh, uh, in Pakistan in 2011. He was uh, at the head of the stack that went up. I think, in fact, as it happens, he also shot bin Laden's son on the second uh, second deck. And um, as I understand it, and I think as I reported in the book, he uh, fired two shots, at least two shots. The first hit uh, bin Laden, uh, grazed him somewhere, um, not quite clear if it was the hip or the leg, um, but then he got him center mass, um, and at that point, Bin Laden f uh, fell back into the room and onto the ground, a key detail, um, because everyone else who came into the door afterwards fired into him while he was down on the ground, um, according to my sources. Um, and although it's no longer available, I will tell you that on Twitter about a year ago, a member of the unit um, who was there confirmed uh, my version of what was reported uh, and what the version that's in this book um, and describes O'Neill, I think, as being the fourth 
uh, guy through the, the doorway and the fourth man to shoot uh, uh, bin Laden. So Red, um, you know, is <laughs> one guy who says... A silent professional. Silent professional. And, and you know, I think I quote, uh, quoted one of his former teammates who, who uh, know bin uh, Bissonette and O'Neill very well, who said, you know, the, the genius of what they had done in constructing their versions of the story was that there was really only one person who could contradict them, and that guy's never going to talk. Um, I, I think, my, my, the last I checked, I believe um, he's no longer in. I think he's out. Um, and, uh, you know, it's just we'll a, never hear from him, I guess. Yeah, there's a little part of it that kind of, like, makes me smile, I guess, because... There's this dude out there who killed high value target number one, first guy through the door, smokes bin Laden, a historic shot, has nothing to say about it. He's out there living his best life, I guess. You know, yeah. and good for him. You know, I think the what is interesting to me is that um what I you can sort of surmise from from listening to all of this is is that in general the SEALs that are out making the most money telling the most stories are not necessarily the ones who are held in the highest esteem inside. And what you hear over and over is, again, it's, you know, there was a, a terrible irony that it is not the best of our community that is out representing us. Mm -hmm. um, there, it's sort of like an inverse mm -hmm. uh, relation, which is not to say that, that you know, look, O'Neill's teammates... Uh, loved him. Bissonette's teammates loved him. Right. They've got lots of problems with them, but that doesn't mean that they... But Bissonette, you know, by all accounts, was a great operator. Phenomenal operator. Right, right. Uh, and... And, cr and they're courageous. It's not like they're... Cow like they're, they're... They're good operators. They're courageous. It's just maybe... There's nothing to... There's... The, nothing in the reporting here is about how um, they're bad SEALs or bad soldiers right. or are not good at their job. They're right. incredibly good at their job. Right. Right. The, the question is not about whether they're what they did on their best day. The question is what they did on their worst day. It's not about and, whether they got two silver stars, but are happy with the one. They right. Got. That, that, there's, That's a deep cut, Dave. Uh, it's a, a full send. A full uh, send, as the kids say. Um, and, and, you know, the, the, I, I, it's not a, I will say, obviously, as a reporter who is writing about this stuff, it's, I'm not, uh, I'm not going to win any popularity contest. Um, I've gotten over the years some fantastic hate mail um, about on reporting on this stuff, and I, I, you know, I read it all. I enjoy some of it, um, but I think it's really, really important for the American. You know, I don't think that this book is going to change anyone's life. I think that. Um, it's the book that as a citizen, as an interested citizen, wants to know what happened in America's name mm -hmm. during the wars. Part of it, right? We know, look, there are plenty of books and stories about all the great and heroic deeds. There's no shortage of them. Mm -hmm. And I have nothing against them whatsoever. I do happen to have a fealty towards the truth mm -hmm. and think that that's like kind of really important it's like a, a you know a must-have, and um, I think that the American public deserves to understand what the consequences of a blank check for twenty years of war are for the men who served, mm -hmm. for the institutions that 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 uh, refuse to hold itself accountable, and ultimately for the civilian leadership that allowed it to to happen, who are supposed to oversee the officers, and I think that that's. That's what's supposed to happen in a democracy, and that's not partisan. 
that's not a, you know, this isn't a left book, this isn't a right book. I mean, I think it's, I think it's fair to say that almost every one of my sources leans to one party. Mm -hmm. um, and, and it's not the party that, you know, a lot of people will think I vote for. My work is nonpartisan in that it is just geared towards understanding and finding out uncomfortable truths, because that's mm -hmm. what I, I imagined journalism was supposed to be when I started. Mm -hmm. Your book does uh, contain, I mean, there are two other vignettes in the book that I thought were very illuminating, to say the least, was uh, I think these are the most complete accounts I have read about the Captain Phillips rescue, the Linda Norgrove rescue that went bad, and um, the, the heinous murder of Sergeant Logan Melgar. Um, I don't know. I know we're kind of starting to run low on time. Um, Which one do you really want to hear about? I think that uh, the Norgrove one is very well written. I think the Melgar one uh, we should probably dive into because it's pretty bad. Yeah. Uh, you know, I'm... I'm you want me to start from the top? I mean, I don't know how much you, uh, the reader, your audience. Will... I think they're all familiar with uh, that. A couple uh, seals murdered a uh, green beret in Mali, and they, they, our audience has a general familiarity, at least, with that story. Okay, so um, the, the Logan Melgar story, unfortunately, uh, acts as like a sort of, uh, you know, uh, capstone on this post nine eleven. Uh, forever wars and and seal culture um, you know these two operators one who had only been in country for 24 hours um, basically set up to haze and I, that, that was their description haze I, I think the, the book well, wasn't it like professional remediation that was the, yes the language something. that was used in court right. to 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 downplay what they were doing was 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 comical if it weren't for the fact that someone ended up dead I think my point is, is they, um, the SEALs and the two uh, Marine, uh, I think it's, they, you call them Raiders? Raiders, yeah. Raiders um, did not intend to kill right. uh, Melgar. What I reported at both at The Intercept and in the book was Melgar, first of all, they didn't get along. Melgar, their personalities, but they were sharing a, a, a house or an apartment, or a compound, and they didn't get along. Melgar uh, became aware that uh, one of the SEALs uh, who later uh, kills him and, and the second member from SEAL Team 6 had been stealing from uh, a operational fund for, for informants. It was cash. There You get a lot of um, written receipts. It's a well-known um, uh, means of making a small amount of money on deployment. It's been going on. Um, it's not just in SEAL Team 6, but it, it particularly... At a, at a tier one because there's so much autonomy mm -hmm. and so little oversight. Um, and had in somewhere, I don't know if he had confronted him, but they knew that he knew. Um, and as I understand it, and I think um, when you both listen to the uh, testimony in court um, during the court martial um, and read between the lines, it's pretty clear. And I think one of the guys involved said it was, they were going to sexually assault him and film it and use it essentially as blackmail. I, I, they said that they were going to that they were going to they were going to have the the uh, Molly guy like fake sexually assault. Him, the right? seal said that. Okay, Kevin Maxwell, who was the Marine Raider who um, ended up flipping second, said that no, the plan was they were going to sexually assault him, 
in a, in some manner, I believe it was, because uh, that's why it came up with Operation um, uh, Toss Salad. Mm -hmm. They were going to use, and in fact, my according to my sources, the Malian guard that they picked, that they asked to come, was chosen because, for whatever reason, in their group, they knew that that was a, a, a particular thing that he liked to do. Mm -hmm. And so they said, do you want to do this? on this guy, he says yes, and so he's in the room. They're going to film it, and they're gonna show Melgar the, the film of it afterwards and, and as a form of blackmail, mm -hmm. shut up. You know, mm -hmm. professional remediation right, if, right. In, in, in the term uh, that Adam Matthews, the uh, member of SEAL Team 6 who was also involved, um, would later say. Um, they were incredibly drunk, and Melgar fought back, mm -hmm. um, which they And Melgar was not drunk. He had been in his he, room He didn't talking. drink. We'll, we'll, we'll get... We'll, he didn't we'll, drink at all. No, he did drink, but he was not drunk at right. the time he died. We'll get into that in a second. Yeah. Um, he fought back uh, during the resistance. They, the plan was to choke him out quickly, film this thing, uh, this act, some form of it, um, and then, you know, when he came to, they would show him and, and, and hold it over him. Um, he came to after the initial choke out... And so um, Tony DeDolph, uh, who is now currently um, in uh, military prison um, after pleading, uh, I can't remember if he pled homicide or uh, involuntary manslaughter, um, he's got 10 years, uh, chokes him out a second time, mm -hmm. this time pressing his, the way his body was and positioned, his face was in to the bed, in, uh, Melgar's face was into the bed, and he choked him out, and he he crushed his uh, his trachea. I mean, he crushed his throat, um, and he was dead. They then, um, you know, started the CPR and trying to revive him. That failed. Um, I think the thing that I was struck most by, and I, I'll start with this because this ultimately is the point. Two of America's most highly trained operators who the government spends over the course of a career millions of dollars mm -hmm. to train and then maintain their training plus all of the equipment and everything that goes with it, are standing over a now deceased Green Beret a fellow American mm -hmm. a service member and they have a choice mm -hmm. they can do the right thing or they can do the wrong thing. Mm -hmm. And with his body still warm, they immediately began to engage in a cover-up. Mm -hmm. And the point that I think this story is really mm -hmm. about is, is that if two of America's best can make that decision after killing one of their own, mm -hmm. not on a battlefield, mm -hmm. not with an enemy, mm -hmm. not with a legitimate target, with a roommate, mm -hmm. You have to ask yourself... How'd we get to that point? What the hell else has been going on? Mm -hmm. Because there is... Um, you know, there, there is... Again, accidents happen, right? I'm not... Right. I'm, I, everything that I've just described, by the way, sounds an enormous amount like the Ensign Penny... You know, it's yeah, a, it, it's weird that hazing has has like these homoerotic things. Yeah. Like to me, hazing is like smoking a you know smoking making a private, yeah. making him do push-ups till you know till he sweats blood. There's a in in, in particular with the seals hazing. Uh, th there is some that's just like torturous. There are others that is very homoerotic. 
you know, very homoerotic. Um, I'm not a psychologist, and I didn't I didn't delve it into the we book. What Freud we have a bunch of uh, user questions. I'm going to hit you with real quick here, Matthew. Um, Marcelo says, "Why did McRaven give UBL, the UBL mission to SEAL Team Six even after issues on the Captain Phillips mission? Seems like Delta could have handled that mission." Well, two reasons. The first practical one was that the um, SEALs had SEAL Team Six had at the Afghanistan AO and had been truly training and preparing for a mission there. That's one part of it. There's a second part of it, which is McRaven in particular was very fond of the commanding officer of uh, the Red Squadron at the time and may have played that into favor. What people don't realize, and I'm not sure, um, you know, some of this has been published before, he actually initially had chosen the Rangers to lead, to be in command of um, SEAL Team Six on the ground for the mission, which led to a blow up during the during I can, the I can the read in to uh, Pete Van Ho Captain Pete Van Hoosier at the time, and that didn't happen. Um, so it was you know, and the other thing is is by the way, Admiral Craven's a SEAL, mm -hmm. and you know he may have been a four star, and he's 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 one of the good ones I think, um, but that doesn't mean he isn't parochial. Mm -hmm. Carlos asks, could you guys discuss why and if? Rules of engagement and standards of professional conduct on and off the X are important to these types of units. There seems to be some sentiment that there's they, that they should be allowed to do anything. That that tier one guys should be allowed to operate on their own. I think that's what he's saying. That there's a lot of people out there who are like fuck the ROE. We don't need any ROE. Well, I mean, you know, and 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 I think that um, ultimately the next question is, and then what, right? The next, if there is, there are rules of, of, there are laws of war, and they're there for a reason. The U.S. signed up for them. We, everyone who serves in the uniform uh, agrees to it. They are bound by it. And um, whether it's popular or not, and, you know, that doesn't mean that there isn't lots and lots of gray room. But as, as um, one of my sources always said was, you know, they give SEAL Team 6 and Delta so much latitude mm -hmm. legally. It's not hard in that way. It's it's rarely actually an issue, and that's why the old yeah. standard SEAL Team Six was: if you had one gray shoot, you were gone. One incident where you shot someone who wasn't armed, regardless of the answer being they're maneuvering, mm -hmm. doesn't matter, right? There's the difference between threat and non-threat. That changed after 9/11, right. and again the standard dropped. And I, I think to I think most SEAL Team Six operators would agree that that standard is important. I, uh, I'll just add on that point real quick that, yeah, I think the rules of engagement are important, but the ROE is separate from international law. The ROE uh, meets or exceeds international law. Uh, it has to, and the ROE is, is blessed off on and signed off on by unit commanders mm -hmm. on the ground. Right. Um, and a lot of times their ROEs and their interpretations of the laws and the interpretations of how they get to the ROE is fucked up. A lot of times they don't know the law themselves. They don't even have the background to begin to understand the law. And that's when you see asinine restrictions put on soldiers that don't make sense. Mm -hmm. Like uh, you have to fill out a report every time you fire a weapon. Well, that, that's done to cover their ass afterwards. But I, I mean, when you find like in Afghanistan where we had troops under fire in contact with the enemy and we could not call in uh, aircraft to drop bombs on them, right. that's because the commanders on the ground don't fucking right. understand their own ROE. Right. And ROEs, I mean, they. I think they change too. Like if From deployment uh, to deployment. Yeah, ROEs yeah. change. But 
But there's a massive difference between having an ROE that is like you, you can only shoot somebody who is engaging you versus you can only shoot somebody who, who's holding a weapon versus I'm just going to shoot everybody on target regardless of what they're doing. Do the whole thing. And, and I'm not yeah. saying that's what the SEALs were doing. I'm just using that as an example. Um, Jackson says, do you foresee pirate culture dying off anytime soon in SEALs, I assume? Uh, it seems like social media, games, movies, and books glorify war crimes and hatchets, which we have seen these hatchets appear in various forms of media uh, over the last like, 10 years. Uh, no, I think it's a uh, winning brand. It's a, it's a money-making machine. I think that there's, um, uh, there's still a conflict inside the SEALs about this, a cultural conflict. Mm -hmm. um, I think the... Uh, the rogue side is uh, very much winning and, and probably with smaller numbers as a, as a very um, loud minority um, within the teams. But I don't think that there's, I, I don't think it's going anywhere. I, I mean, there's something, there, pirate culture is attractive and, and I mean, there, there are things about it, you know, the whole kind of Marine Corps, you know, improvise, adapt and overcome. It, it's, but, but like, but what specifically is pirate culture, yeah. right? Is I'll, it, is I'll it... say, like, I had someone contact me once getting upset uh, with something I said, and he was like, listen, well, cause he's like, listen, man, the thing with the hatchets, like, after my first firefight, my teammates gave me a tomahawk. And I was like, dude, that's not what I'm talking about. I don't have any problem with that whatsoever. Like, it goes up on your wall. It's a memento. That's cool. Like, yeah, why not? It's all the okay. other stuff beyond that. That's... I'll tell you right now. I carried a tomahawk for like two ops, and when I realized that it was complete, because I wanted, <laughs> I wanted, I I wanted a hatchet kill. What can I say? I'm not gonna like hit somebody when they're dead, but but then when I realized how absolutely unfeasible it is, <laughs> I'm lugging right? this thing around. You, you've got your primary, you've got your secondary. How in the hell am I gonna, you know, pull out a hatchet? You know, without some dude shooting me first, so you know it, it. It never went on another op, but, but I mean, there's, there's, I don't know. I, it, you know, where that came from was that old uh, Vietnam LERP uh, painting. You know, and there's, there's like a tradition or a heritage behind it, and it is a tool. Um, but I mean, so, so is a, a hooligan, so. a musket, yeah. Uh, Elliot says, what is the current status of DevGrew in this regard? What does Matthew see as the future of DevGrew after the kind of op-tempo that they've seen during the global war on terror? That's a really good question. Um, two years ago, I think at the end of the Trump administration, I asked someone at the Pentagon what the differences between Delta and SEAL Team 6 were on the issue of sort of pivoting away from um, the global war on terror and, and counterterrorism. And at that time... The senior official said that Delta had done a much better job of shifting away from counterterrorism and towards more some of the more traditional um, uh, the sort of genre or operations that they did, which were not necessarily kinetic, a lot more intelligence gathering and and collecting and and things that fit under the realm of um, unconventional warfare. Um, and that SEAL Team 6 had been slow. I don't know where that's at today. I think, um, you know, there are fewer places for SEAL Team 6 right now to operate because we're not in Afghanistan, for instance, um, whereas uh, Delta still obviously is um, Iraq, Syria, um, and although there's some SEALs there, it's less there uh, 
area of operations. So I think that's a challenge for SEAL Team 6 is to figure out how to go back to, for instance, one of um, something that they were very good at, which was being a part of the um, counterproliferation efforts um, uh, against Iran and North Korea. Um, last question here. Paul. Actually, we have some. You asked this, but we have some that we missed. That they, really? they, yeah, they went up in chat, so Paul, I've got the super. Paul asks, uh, he says, in your book, you mention a child medevaced to Bagram after a CivCast incident who was then cared for by JSOC in SEAL Team 6. Do you know what happened to him? He lived, the kid, the kid lived, I, I, I did know what happened to him. It's actually, it's a good story, not a bad one. I just can't remember um, whether the child was brought out of Afghanistan or um, eventually transferred. I, I think he actually lived, he was nursed by one of the officers um, in Bagram for the entire deployment, and then it had a happy ending. It was not mm -hmm. a bad ending. Mm -hmm. I just can't remember. And you know, and that's interesting too, because that that happened right after uh, uh, Roberts Road, right? And yeah. and they go on this op. They're going to do a, a VI vehicle vehicle interdiction, and the Air Force bombs these vehicles instead. And the SEALs are upset about that, not because they wanted to get their kill on. But because like nobody knew who was in these vehicles, and they go down there and they find these civilians, um, and you know, there may have been you know uh, a SEAL who you know did something and you know that was questionable. But for the most part, most of these SEALs were like concerned about these civilians, and they medevaced the boy who was or the child who was still alive. That particular, you know, that particular incident, and I know I've interviewed several people who are on that. Uh, operation was very traumatic for having discovered the scene of coming upon, uh, in particular, women and children who had been um, hit by the shrapnel from one of the bombs um, that had been, or missiles that had been fired by the, uh, the Air Force. Um, and that was something that was also part of the, the, the you, know, you call it trauma, but the, the secondary tertiary effects of um, that first deployment in Afghanistan. There was also, as it happened, retribution from Roberts Ridge that came down in terms of the uh, officer uh -huh. who was there, one of the officers. And in that case, um, it was a, it's another scenario where you had a bunch of um, seasoned operators being led by a Naval Academy officer who had not gone through Green Team and had been put in charge um, as an officer who had no respect from his men. Um, and it was because he wasn't qualified, right? He had been a boats guy, and and that was that dynamic is like playing out through through years and years at SEAL Team Six. Yeah, get through the rest of yeah. the questions. Uh, so, um, first off, David A, thank you very much for the two very generous donations. Uh, Jackson, what was the? Uh, I don't know if you you know what is the darkest story event that you uh, or Jack know of. Uh, that didn't make it into the book and why is there anything because uh yes there's a murder of a child in afghanistan early in the war um that while i confirmed uh that it happened and i know who um is responsible i did not have enough details to um you know everything in this book uh is has been fact checked very thoroughly it's been legally vetted um, and it has multiple sourcing. Um, this one, although it had multiple sources, I didn't have enough of the details, the narrative details to justify putting it in. Um, but it was an example early in my reporting of describing um, a very talented SEAL 
who SEAL Team 6, as was described to me, had broken because he had done this, they'd covered it up, and they moved on, and it was, you know, enough said. I mean, you know, the murder of a child is a, is a, is a difficult one to stomach. So that didn't make it in, and, you know, I, I just, just assume probably it'll never be published. Yeah. Uh, and just real quick, because we talk about fact check, there was one tiny little detail in your book, right? There was. I made an error uh, about Delta and what the requirements are. Um, and actually, I had a, someone who, before you, pointed out, someone else had sent me an email. Um, I think, I don't remember how it was written in the book, but essentially I suggested that you don't have to be um, in the military to join Delta, which obviously isn't true. What I really meant was you don't have to be in the Army uh, to to be drafted into Delta, to be selected in and pass the course. And uh, error is uh, regretful and all my own. And uh, future editions will have a fix. Yeah, so anybody anybody who's like gonna nitpick that, just know that like he was just trying to say you didn't have to be in the army and it, it didn't quite come out that way. So anyway, um, Jackson, does Delta really do a better job policing their own in comparison to SEAL Team I 6 given their that. recent history? Historically, yes, that's the short answer, absolutely. I mean, I you know. The, 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 I'm sure there are plenty of things. Maybe my next book will be about them. Um, how much did pirate culture bleed over into the non-shooter parts of SEAL Team 6, such as Black Squadron? Uh, Black Squadron, you know, uh, so I intentionally did not write about Black Squadron. Um, they had some problems and there are some issues, um, but there were a lot of sensitive programs um, that I know about that I didn't think... Um, reporting, I didn't think it was just, I couldn't justify reporting about them um, in the sense that the problems there were not anywhere near what was going on in the assault squadrons. Um, they have some issues, but those issues, I had to balance it against exposing some things that um, were, you know, pretty sensitive. Mm -hmm. And I tried to err on the side of, you know, this book, frankly, um, it has a lot of it has a lot of secrets and a lot of dirt, but there's not that much that's actually classified. It's not a tell-all. It's not meant to be a tell-all. Right. So, right. Um, but, you know, they have some problems, I, but not as much as the assault squadrons. Um, and, and thank you, Connor, for that. Um, Mark, thank you very much. How many current and former SEALs did you interview for the book? Oh, I think it's in the book. Uh, between 30 and 40... Um, and then you start to, but that's not including, that's not including all of the people who worked with SEAL Team 6 and people from JSOC and other services who were on some of the missions or who were there. So I think in all, I have to look at the beginning of the book and I, I can't remember. I've been interviewing people for 10 years off and on. So, um, SEALs, it's probably close to about 40, um, but it, that, that could be wrong, could be 50. I, I have, a, I, you know, I actually have a list somewhere. Yeah. Um, but uh, it's not on the top of my head. Um, and, and I think that's one of the challenging things with your book, right, is because a lot of your sources are, you know, unnamed SEAL former or former SEAL. And, and you know, so, I, I mean, you've done these people a service of, you know, listening to them, corroborating their stuff, but also... I'm sure it's very hard for you as a as a reporter not to list your sources. There is nothing I want more than to have people on the record. This area of reporting, it's just not feasible, not in our current, you know, I, I don't know that it'll ever be feasible. And, and I think it's, it's unfortunate. I, I think there is honor and anonymity in this kind of um, reporting. 
Um, and I think that if I could write a book or have added to the book the details, even without names, of where, how my sources came to some of this information, what their experiences were at SEAL Team 6, how essentially this book came to be, I can, I can assure you that it would be incredibly compelling and mm -hmm. far more in that sense. Not that I, I think there's anything in my book that's not believable. It's, I undersell it, if anything. Mm -hmm. But it would be even more compelling mm -hmm. um, than what I have because their stories are, you know, I mean, uh, it, they didn't just have or, you know, courage to join, to, to make it, to do well in the battlefields to lead men, they had moral courage when it mattered. Mm -hmm. And that I think is, you know, unfortunately, you know, too rare. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I'm, and obviously in that sense, I'm biased. Uh, Jackson, thank you. Elaborate on blue team being more professional. Uh, I don't know if I said more professional. I think um, there was an element to blue team as it was described to me historically and culturally that had some senior enlisted guys who were interested in solving the uh, problem, whatever the mission was in the operation, um, where pulling a trigger was the was the option of last resort. They mm -hmm. wouldn't hesitate, but there was an art. They they they. I mean, someone described to me a, a particular incident that happened in Afghanistan where they kind of were trying to imagine themselves as ninjas, how to get in and out of a place silently and make someone disappear, not kill them but make someone disappear because the effect of having grabbed them in the middle of the night while no one else who was in the compound sleeping was the wiser, was more terrifying to mm -hmm. wake up to, to mm -hmm. have someone who disappeared than to find you know, their, their, their comrade or their family member killed. And so that, that's sort of what I meant. You know, it, it, one of the things that, I, and I don't mean to, we have a couple more questions, but one of the things that was really interesting to me is how some of the f SEALs felt that when the policy became doing call-outs, that, that that was like sort of a chicken shit way of doing it because, you know, it was, you know, to protect the women and children, why would we give up that advantage? And that's not why call-outs started, though, because, you know, so many people were taking casualties from doing this hostage rescue technique on a target where, where there were no hostages, that it was safer for the troops to do call-outs. Yeah. You know, it became because then you do a call out. If they start shooting, you can pull off and just bomb the target. You don't have to run into a building. But it was interesting that it was the SEALs. They interpreted it that, that way. It was the SEALs interpretation. It was, that, it was C Squadron that got really chewed up, I think, in like 2004. And they started using that. And the Rangers started doing it. Yeah. And yeah. You know, and it just became the standard because it was it was dumb to run into a building that, <laughs> that, that would barricade against CQB. You know, where they understood the, the tactic and were ready for it. Yeah. Uh, uh, Paul, thank you. You spent a, quite a bit, of, uh, a lot of the time on the book with Dwayne Dieter, and we didn't get to that at all, but it was great content. What drew you to his story, and do you think dropping CQD had an impact on Dev Group's problems? Uh, yes, I think it's very clear. Uh, I make the, uh, the book makes the, the inference that by dropping Dieter and CQD at when they did, um, their ethical lapses and problems rose. Um, let me make a caveat here that there is, I've always known that there is another civil war inside the teams between um, Dieter, CQD, and non-Dieter, often MMA, and I am not a expert in tactics uh, by any reason, by any measure, and I don't try to be. Um, 
what became clear early on for me was Dieter had a list. He keeps meticulous records mm -hmm. of every um, training he's ever done. Dieter had a list, and he was so involved with these guys at SEAL Team 6 early on that he had a list of problem SEALs in his training. Um, guys who, when they did the hood and the hood came off, even though they were supposedly the best wrestlers, they were flailing and they would fail. Mm -hmm. and, and, and almost, actually, uh, frequently, the most aggressive are the ones that do the worst in the initial um, hood drill. Um, what he had was a list of all the SEALs who had issues in his training, ethical problems, signs that there was something off mm. ethically, morally, okay? Problems with the dial up and dial down, right? It happened, and I, this is true story, was almost an identical list of everyone after three years of reporting that my sources had identified were um, some of the worst um, in committing war crimes mm -hmm. or uh, abetting them. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I'm not a... Uh, psychologist but and I'm and I'm not even an expert on time but I just don't think that's coincidence mm. I think it was very clear that there was some connection to be drawn between a list of problems in this system and a list of problems on the battlefield mm. um, and culturally and then as I reported more and more what became clear was no one disputes how good the hood is right sense I mean that's not a uh, you know I mean Matt Bissonette takes an entire chapter of his book where he refuses to name what it is or who did it, but talks about the power of the hood, right? So Dieter was doing something right. Yeah. And um, the fact that he was pushed out. Now, you know, I know what some of the criticism is about why um, they targeted um, getting rid of CQD and Dieter, which was that they felt that he was doing too much and, and trying to adapt his uh, stuff into everything. Mm -hmm. And there was a lot of pushback against that. But the reporting shows that there was a interest to commercialize and brand training outside of, of, of Damneck and the SEAL and SEAL Command to make it profitable, and Dieter wouldn't go along with right. it. And that was a problem. Right. And so they removed him. Right. And I think that there is, had they kept it, yeah, there would have been fewer problems. Well, I mean, I, if I'm wearing full kit, I'd rather do a, a muzzle strike than a, than a double leg takedown. Yeah. Um, all right. Uh, let's see here. I think... Let's okay. see. Uh, let me just make sure. I, people... Matthew, I want to ask you, what's been the reception to this book so far? I mean, this is the book that a lot of people, I think, in this country don't really want to hear about or read about. Um, the Navy certainly doesn't want you reading it. Yeah, well, it's been mixed. I mean, you know, first of all, it came out a few days before uh, Putin decided to invade uh, Ukraine. So unfortunately, there's been um, a, more, a more significant and obviously more uh, urgent story. And the news, I, the, the reception has been good um, in the sense that I have gotten calls from people, um, I'm Twitter DMs from people who have read it, who are in the SEALs, who are in the Navy, who thanked me for writing it. Um, and, and frankly, that's the most satisfying. I got um, someone who was, uh, obviously I'm not going to name them, but someone who had been a uh, JAG for NSW who um, for a significant amount of time who reached out to thank me for it and, and say that, that um, everything in there had rung true from his experience dealing with um, some of the officers. Um, and, you know, I, I think that this is a book that will take a little bit of time. Um, to digest. Yeah. I, it, it's, you know, one of the things that I, occurred to me when I first started writing it is that there is no, there had been no, uh, prior to Code Over Country, um, 
history of SEAL Team 6, or even the SEALs really, that had not been written by either someone from the SEAL community or someone who was a fan of the SEAL community. Mm -hmm. It was mostly hagiography. And so in that sense, Code Over Country happens to be in many ways the most objective and certainly the most journalistic history of SEAL Team 6. And I think, you know, that there's there's a, a long life uh, for that. Yeah. Uh, we let, let's, uh, these people are trying to decide, I just want to get to their, uh, did, we didn't ask Elliot, did we? Uh, what is the current status of Dev Group? We did? Okay, sorry about that. Um, Carlos, thank you. Uh, Follow-up, that's why I asked, he was asked, he's the guy who asked about the ROE. Guys in chat seem to think it's okay to ignore ROE standards profession. Look, I mean, it's easy to like say, you know, that these guys are on the cutting edge of combat and they're in war, they have to be warriors. And there, there, there is that, but there's a huge dividing line between taking the fight to the enemy, you know, laying the hate and, and doing things that are psychologically damaging to yourself and, and just not in accord with Well, there's also, the, the other thing is, it's not just, we're not talking about ROEs really. We're right. talking about when, when something goes wrong though, the other thing is their instinct is to cover it up. Right. And there's nothing honorable in that. There's right. nothing just in that scenario and and there's no internal accountability for it so that's really uh, you know a bigger issue and that's why to your point about what happened with the chapman incident is that what is you know let's forget about what happened at the top of the mountain right for a second and let's just go to what happens when the their image or their story is threatened right they turn and and the thing is it wasn't even actively they weren't even actively the air force agreed to to award them the medal of honor just for what happened in bunker at bunker one to not even talk about that he got up back up after no that. no no that's not that's not true the, the air force always had there are two parts of the award and two citations right two full citations the agreement became to make the second citation which is for the um after uh getting back up and fighting for an hour, that became classified. And that right. was a political decision. You make it classified so that the public doesn't have to hear that um, one guy got an award uh, for one part, the SEAL, but you know, mistakenly left another guy behind. And then that guy got back up and fought for another hour on his own. So that was too embarrassing. So that was a political decision. But what they, what they but I wanna correct you about something. What they, what they did was they actively went in and changed their story and misled some of the senior officials of the Pentagon about what had happened on there. And they, they, and you know, one of the things I'm most proud of in the reporting in this book is that I was able to get a transcript and the recordings of a long interview that Slabinski did for a book in 2004, most of which was never published. And he lays out in great detail what happened up there as he remembered it. It was consistent with all the things he had said previously. Mm -hmm. It was the story that he stuck to all the way until the moment in which he was confronted with the new video and the, the updated imagery. And then the story changes. Right. And that's the issue. Right. right. It's the it, it's the lie. Right. It's the it's the the untruths, it's the misstatements, right? That's where you get to the heart of, of the problem. And that's the code. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um uh, so that was the uh, any other nations have these issues? We've seen this with the Aussies. Anybody else? I think every country and every every yeah. military force that's ever fought in a war has has these issues. And I, and I think actually it's probably true that America historically are 
continue to evolve um, in, the, in the good way, which is less and less and fewer and fewer, unfortunately, it's that what you really don't want to see is if this is being done by privates in the army, young Marines, you know, E3s, E4s, E5s, there is, to some extent, it's understandable. Right. Not, not acceptable. You don't acceptable. Right. When you have this level of, of skill, of training, to veer off into the illegal, the immoral, the unethical, um, it's much worse. And that's why the, the, the officers have to be held accountable. And, that, and that's one of the things that struck me about the whole Melgar thing is you're not talking about a couple of 19-year-olds that like got drunk. You're talking about an E6 and E7, right? Yeah. You know. Um, Carlos, thank you. Another question. One other argument that's out there and in this chat is the enemy does worse to our guys to civvies, so we should respond accordingly. Valid argument. Valid argument. Question mark. FYI, not trying to drop money to roasting when just curious. I mean, I think this entire episode answers that question. Yeah, right? yeah. I don't think there's any look. If war crimes are human, and they are, it's understandable. That doesn't mean it's justifiable. And there is a difference between. I mean, you know. And the next question is: Is if it's okay to chop a guy's head off um, after you killed him, or chop his head off? What What isn't okay then? I mean, the the, the right. there's a reason right. why there are lines. If, if they discipline. if they sexually assault a, a female soldier, does that mean we can go in their village? Like. Like it, kill them, like kill them. They're bad guys, kill them. But what more do you need to do after that? Um, Brendan, thank you. Brian, sorry guys. Uh, Brian, Ron Spears, Band of Brother fame, had a decorated career and people want to remember for what he never wanted to brag, remember for what he never wanted to brag about. I was talking about one of the guys was uh, accused of war crimes, uh, executing German POWs during the war. Uh, I'm not situation. Yeah, that's a tough situation. It, right. It's in Band of Brothers. Yeah. It, but I mean, what do you do with POWs when you're out, you know, 100 miles from anyway? Um, so the book is Code Over Country by Matthew Cole. Uh, Matthew, what, what's next for you? Are you doing anything like a book tour with the book? Do you have anything else you're working on? What What can we expect I, in the future? We can expect, uh, you can expect, I've got a story coming for The Intercept where I'm an investigative reporter um, about the SEALs, um, a, a scandal small scandal, but uh, a scandal nonetheless. Um, I'm, I think I'm now going to do uh, some tours. I think when we first book first came out, uh, Omicron had still, um, the mandates were all around. I think there's a, more, a little more freedom, so I hope to. Um, and I have uh, another investigation going on that may or may not turn out to be a book, but I can't unfortunately talk about it. Sure. Well, I hope that we're some of the first people you do tell about. I will be. I will be. I'm very grateful for being on. Guys, you can go pick up the book. On, it's ebook. It's on Amazon. It's wherever you guys shop. Um, Audio, ebook, hardcover. And there's a lot more in here that we didn't cover. On there's the show. a lot yeah. of, of great content in there. And again, this isn't to hate on seals and say that seals are horrible human beings. This is just to show a problem in, in that community yeah. it really has to do with the leadership. SEALs are not horrible human beings. Right. There's a, an enormous amount of honorable men who serve as SEALs, many of whom, frankly, um, were sources for this book. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, even even Slavinsky, even though we talk about changed the problem, what he did was very courageous, you know, going up there, absolutely. going up again to try to get Robert, you know. Absolutely. Like, you, you know, it, it, it's hard in these types of situations to, to look at a person and judge him by one action because oh, there's so much more that it goes into it. Absolutely. You know, I think that one of the things I, I thought as I was writing about this is that in a lot of ways, this is a book about good men doing bad things. Yeah. And it's hard for people to um, 
balance or conceive of the idea that good men do bad things, bad men do good things. And that's a tough, you know, when they're, when they're mixed in, it's, it's mm -hmm. tough. It doesn't fit neatly in this, um, you know, a black and white world where everything is, is easy to identify what's good and what's bad. You know, it, this is a book about the grays. Yeah. Yeah. So guys, don't be afraid of the book. Out of 136 episodes we've done on this show, every once in a while, there's <laughs> one like the one with David Phillips that's like not so cool, you know, but um, it's important to have these kinds of conversations and I hope we can keep having them. Uh, next Friday, we're going to have a woman on the show who served with the cultural support teams. And um, so she's the first CST we've had on the show. So I'm looking forward to talking to her. And um, I don't know, you guys got anything else? No, I'm really happy to be They find you on. at The Intercept. Where else can they find you? Yeah, The Intercept. I'm an investigative reporter. Uh, you Google me. I'm on Twitter. I don't tweet much, but uh, you can find me there. Yeah, make sure you subscribe to the channel if you haven't already. And Join our Patreon. Check the links down in the description. Buy the book. Buy the book. Check the out. in the description. Check out Code Over With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.